fellow Westorians. Welcome to Valar Reredis for Duncan Egg. It's the Sworn Sword Part 4. Let's see what today brings us, eh, my fellow Westorians? With me today is Jim McGeehan, a.k.a. something like a lawyer. He's functioning kind of like a closer here. We're finishing off the Sworn Sword. We're bringing in a heavy hitter. Sean's not available this weekend. And we have had a lot of great times with Jim in the past. So you're just kind of a natural fit here. We've, we've always had good discussions. And you had some great points uh, about this story that we were talking about offline. And, you know, it just kind of made sense to say, hey, well, we need someone for this week. And Jim's got good thoughts. We've had him on before. It always goes well. Boom, there you go. So welcome back, my friend. Uh, nice, happy confluence of factors. And I'm really happy I was able to actually get in because uh, Sworn Sword is my favorite of the Duncan Egg tales. I think they're all great, but Sworn Sword is uh, probably my favorite. And I think part of it is because it is a medieval Western. We'll get into that and a lot of other things. We've got a lot of uh, things to wrap up here. And of course, a couple of things we probably won't get to, but don't forget, folks, we're going to do a full Duncan Egg wrap up episode as we did sort of in the style of the end of book one, the end of book two, the end of book three. We did. We always do a wrap up at the end of each one. So we'll do that for Duncan Egg as well. Thanks to Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L in Alley, always providing us with a bunch of excellent thoughts and discussion points to get us going and have us give us lots of great things to talk about. Check out some of the recent articles on her blog. She's got a, a great take on Dunk's dream, the second dream. There's two dreams in this story. The first one, of course, is in Dorne. The second one is more of a romantic dream about Lady Rohan. She draws some comparisons to the myth of Artemis and Acteon there as well, which is pretty cool. And uh, as well as uh, she takes questions there. One of the recent ones that I was interested in is what's going to happen when Tyrion and Danny meet for the first time? How's George going to approach that? Like, which POV is it going to be from? And how's it going to go? How's she going to react to him? How's he going to react to her? It's been built up a lot. So yeah, we're going to have to wait and see, but she's got some good thoughts on how that might go. As well, I'd like to thank all the folks who join our discussion groups offline, like uh, Discord and Slack and uh, Facebook, as well as Flick. Lots of great comments and discussions happening there. Each of those groups is a little different in terms of the technology, the, the setup of the forums and the types of things that get discussed. Discord is a wide variety of topics. Flick is very focused on specifically what the next episode is only and not much else. Now, Facebook is Facebook, so there's just lots of things going on there as well. And Slack is a bit smaller. Take your pick. Or none of the above. You can take that pick too, of course. <laughs> now, thanks as well to anyone who supports us on Patreon. We have been churning quite a while here. It's been a while since we've started our first Patreon launch. And I think it's been about five years. We might have a five-year anniversary or a six-year anniversary coming out. You know, I really should check into that. But it's been a great ride. We've got many more years ahead of us. So join us if you want to get a little bonus content, occasional shout-out, access to scripts, things like that. So yeah, Jim, let's start with your overall thoughts on the story. You said you it's your favorite. And the medieval Western aspect of it is one of the things that really jumps out at you. So why don't you take it away? Tell us where uh, that idea came from and what some of the, the aspects of it that led you to that comparison. So I have a theory with Duncan Egg and uh, Duncan Egg is basically uh, George R. R. Martin taking either genres or individual stories that he likes and putting them into the Westerosi setting. Yeah. Uh, with the Hedge Knight, it's clearly Ivanhoe. This is a Western. 
the mystery night, you're actually having a little bit of a crime thriller. Mm. And specifically, I'm thinking Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. I mean, with the story is of a uh, everyday Joe that happens to blunder into a secret conspiracy, which sounds an awful lot like the plot of Mystery Night. Um, <laughs> and, and North by Northwest is a phenomenal film. It's one of Hitchcock's best. Yeah. But um, the, one of the things I really liked about this uh, story is that it's, it's small, it's focused, and it's really dialogue-driven. I mean, yeah. it's surprising how much of the action is actually driven through in essentially social confrontation. You have, you know, the icon, you know, the, the stand-down between Dunk and the Wood of Rohan. You have uh, essentially the big climactic moment of, you know, when Dunk goes to Eustace Osgrey and is like, you, know, you were actually part of the Blackfire, uh, the Black uh, Dragon. And so much of it is actually, I mean, there is the, the climactic scene at the end in the, the, the duel in the stream, but so much of this is actually dialogue driven. And it reminds me of a lot of the good bottle episodes you see in TV where there's just where dialogue is driving the action because it's meant to actually cut down on the budget. Mm-hmm. Obviously the, it's not really the same uh, for when it comes to, to writing, but a song of ice and fire, the main novel series is an epic fantasy and it has to be large in scope. I mean, it spans two continents. It spans so many, I mean, however many different POV characters. I mean, you need an appendix just to actually look at the number of people that are actually in this book. But I mean, the sworn sword, I mean, there's what a handful of care of a handful of characters. And of those handful of characters, maybe half of them are actually driving the story in some fashion or another. They just, all of the characters, even like Bennis, the Brown is as a foil for dunk. And as one of the worst elements of being a hedge knight, because he's essentially a bandit. Yeah. Yeah. He is. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> he, re- he, <laughs> he really gives us that example of how it says that a lot of, you know, like, what's that? Where's the line between Hedge Knight and Brigand? And yeah, you really see. <laughs> yeah. well, and we really should have known better because yeah. he's called Sir Bennis the Brown because he's a shit knight. <laughs> and it, it took me in, an, well, let's just say an unflattering amount of time for me to make that realization. <laughs> so, but I mean, you have all sorts, but I mean, these characters are just, they play off each other really well. They're presented very strongly. And it's just, there's so much fun in them yeah that that's what I, I i think that this one just really kind of clinches it for me in terms of uh it's just satisfying to read and i i mean these are stories you can really read in one setting like these are all but i blew through the sworn sword and i didn't even realize i was doing it, that's how fast <laughs> you know, that's how i mean i was reading and i was absorbing and all that other stuff so fun. i think that's what but uh, now to get into the whole western thing yeah tell us about um, that yeah so i think most people, most audience members are familiar with Westerns, but if you aren't, essentially it's a film genre. Uh, it's an American film genre. It deals with stories that are in the, uh, in the old West. And there's just so much Western that I can see in here. And one of the, actually the biggest thing I see that is a Western is because of the setting itself in Westerns, the actual environment is a character and you see these wide panorama shots, these vistas, whether that be the, you know, the Red Rock Mountains of Arizona or the Prairie or even, you know, the mountains of Colorado or something like that. And you can really see that when, when Dunk is going through Osgrey's lands, when he's patrolling, you can really, he really, fo- uh, George R. R. Martin focuses a lot of time on just seeing the decay, the, the water, and the drought that are really hurting. Yeah. And that makes sense because, you know, the land is wounded. I mean, if we're looking at the whole Fisher King, let's take a Fisher King metaphor. The land was wounded by the, Blackfire rebellions, you know, brother fighting brother, and then it goes into the Great Spring Sickness, where when the 
in the Fisher King, it's the king is suffers, so the land suffers, whereas here, the people are suffering. Mm-hmm. And so now the land is suffering. It's kind of a, his kind of metaphor with that. Right on. And similarly, the, the main conflict of the story is over use of the river. And a lot of Western stories actually have to deal with water rights and conflict over resources. Mm. Um, you know, you'll have the big cattle barons fighting against the, the plucky homesteaders, or you'll have, you know, you'll have the, uh, I mean, one I'm thinking of specifically is uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, very, very famous Western, one of the best ones ever. And it was specifically about the water rights for a specific piece of land where the uh, trains are going to go by. And so the trains need water, you know, they need water for the locomotives and stuff like that. So whoever has that land is going to be poised to make the tilling. So, of course, the big businessman is trying to muscle out uh, the guy that actually owns it. And later his widow would come and take it and hire a gunfighter, help protect her and stuff like that. And so that's just kind of, you know, and that's very much dealing with the, uh, the checky water is essentially the sweet water once upon time in the West. And then Dunk, thick as a castle wall, is our Western hero. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a very strong sense of righteousness, very individualistic, very low class. Almost all of the Western heroes you see are rural, they're ranchers, they're farmers, or they're, you know, wanderers who uh, come in and take, uh, take the martial star on for themselves. And so you know, he's not afraid to fight. He's not afraid to do any of this stuff. He's very clearly this Western hero, this frontier marshal, as he's patrolling the land of the Czechy water and uh, of, of Standfast. And then you have the widow Rohan. She's essentially the Jill McBain from Once a Time in the West. Um, and this is kind of where it shows as a revisionist. Uh, the classic Westerns had maybe three roles for women. Uh, they were either doting wives, damsels, or if they were villains, they were saloon girls. Because, saloon in, girls. <laughs> well, they, you couldn't say prostitute. It was the era oh, of the Hayes Code. Oh, right. So they were saloon girls, and they were <laughs> wicked, and they were they, they were meant to tempt the, uh, you know, they were Jezebel types meant to tempt the uh, the hero off his path. Right. But in these the revisionist West, Westerns, and that's where you get, your, you know, your Clint Eastwood Westerns, women started getting more prominent roles. And this is what you can see with the widow Rohan. I mean, mm. she's, sex- she's sexually active, clearly, mm-hmm. because, you know, she had children. She's intelligent and she demands to have what is hers. She's not going to sit back. She's essentially, you know, I'm not going to be a background character. I'm a main character. Right. This is my land. These are my rights and I'm going to assert them. And so that's always great with her. So, and a lot of the great actresses that portray female protagonists in Westerns, especially these revisionist Westerns, often have to deal with this sort of, you know, you're a woman, so you, you don't have this property right or this, that, or that, the other thing. And, you know, she's very clearly trying to say, no, that's not, that's not the way it goes. Then you have Eustace Osgray, and Eustace Osgray is this old soldier. You can actually see him as a Civil War veteran, oh, uh, where yeah. he's, pi- he's pining away for this. And I mean, that's the thing, is that he a is lot a of Civil Westerns, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these famous, believe not the famous Old West guys, they say, you know, Old West veteran is a way to kind of explain in Western movies how they, they have their gunfighting skills. Uh, they actually, a lot of these famous Old West guys weren't actually even around when the, when the Civil War happened. I mean, you had, uh, uh, Wild Bill Hickok was a teamster for the Union Army. Virgil Earp was a soldier for the Union Army. But uh, Wyatt Earp was too young. Mm. Um, Billy the Kid, I think, was six when the uh, <laughs> Civil War was over. <laughs> You know, it's really only Jesse James and uh, Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody that were the big names that were actually involved in the Civil War. All the rest of them came afterwards. But the scars of the Civil War did, in fact, have a lot of things. Like when these uh, 
these Texas cattlemen would drive their cattle into Abilene, Kansas or something like that. And then there would be gunfights and they would break out because, you know, these Texas guys were from Texas and these uh-huh. union, these marshals were from Kansas. There was history. Oh, yeah. And there was, mm. You know, there was history. Even if these people didn't actually fight in the Civil War, the, the memory of it was carried from their so fathers. With black, them. And gray, black and red, it's blue and gray or what have you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And you can kind of see Eustace Osgray as probably a Confederate veteran mm. because he's actually... Yeah. You know, he, he's actually, you can see some elements of the Lost Cause myth and very much like the outlaw Josie Wales, which is kind of a fantasy retelling uh, or fictional retelling of Jesse James that was a lot more sanitized. And okay. I mean, we could talk about the history of Jesse James being sanitized right here and back. <laughs> but um, but uh, you can actually see, you know, and George R. R. Martin is handling this, I think, very well because he's, you know, Eustace Osteria is talking about some of the things that he does feel that you can really empathize with, like the loss of his sons. But also he's saying, hey, he had women and Dornishmen in his court. And that's not sympathetic to to the modern audience at all. And you can kind of see that where you can say, okay, well, I can empathize how he's lost his son and he feels this loss. Yes. And and, and that's sympathetic and human. Yeah. And so you can kind of see Eustace Osprey there. Absolutely. And then so everything culminates in essentially the final gunfight, which is the, the showdown in the stream. And it's very clearly a duel. Yep. So you can actually imagine instead of being in the stream, they're on the street. And then, you know, when the duel begins, both Dunk and uh, the Longinch, you know, the Lucas Long- and Lucas Longinch essentially draw their six I- or six shooters and try and shoot each other. But it's, it gets into instead of, you know, a tussle because the, the technology, but um, there's one scene in, in high noon, which is the, the thing I was talking about. High noon, the iconic shot is when Gary Cooper walks out on the street and he's alone. Because in the whole movie, there is no action scenes. There's no gunfights. I mean, hmm. plenty of Westerns have gunfights. I mean, you know, the Wild Bunch, the Peckinpah uh, Westerns and yeah. all that have great gunfights. But it's all about him trying to get a posse together to actually fight uh, the outlaws when they come into town on the noon train. And all of the people don't want to help him. Um, like his deputy says, well, I'll only help you if you tell the town fathers that you want me to be the next marshal. <laughs> so, you know, he's clearly doing it for self-serving. The people that do want to help him, uh, one is the former retired marshal. He's so arthritic, he can't even hold a gun. <laughs> uh, there's the town drunk who can't see straight. And there's like a, four, a 14-year-old boy who's brave. And, but, and then there's even a great thing when one guy volunteers and he sees nobody else volunteering and he steps back. Um, <laughs> kind of the opposite of what happens with Theon. Yeah. <laughs> Winterfell, when, when, uh, right. when Wex shames so everyone, he's like, no, never mind. <laughs> the iconic shot is that the camera pans up and he walks out onto the street and he's alone. Mm. And that's just, I mean, that's in essence the Western hero. You do what is right, even if you're by yourself. So when the clock strikes noon, you are there. It's, it's a, a classic staple of Western storytelling. And this is the movie where it was really established. Mm. And you can really see that with Dunk in a lot of these things where he says, you know, I'm going to do the right thing. That's real. I mean, think about the, the hedge knife with the, uh, you know, who are you? A man who, who remembered his vows. And that is makes him the Western hero. Yeah. He was willing and, to go uh, alone, but of course, he the circumstances yes. forced him to have and, fighting. And he was fight able to, him, yeah. and he was able to actually find a posse. And then you can actually see even this Baylor Breakspear, the uh, the West, you know, being a Western hero as well. When he says, "Yeah, uh, you know, you were the man. You know, I will stand. Mm-hmm. I will stand with you, even though you know he doesn't have equipment. He's 
I mean, at, at what point? He's 40s. In his, so that's where I see with this Western. And similarly, you can see the same, this high noon thing with Brienne. Oh, and, yeah. you know, if, if I were to, if you were to put the no it's chance, takes no place choice at an moment, inn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you were to say no chance, no choice, you could put it into a Western. Yeah. You could and call it, it the, that. The thing, it, it would, it would, <laughs> you know, the, the camel would pan out and Brienne would be marching out sword in hand alone in the street as, you know, Rorge and Biter and all those guys are out there. Yeah. And that it wouldn't be out of place at all. It would be a perfect Western. That's really good. So that, yeah. This is when I say so the Swan Sworn is a Western. There's just so many nuggets of Western storytelling within the Swan Sworn. That's great, man. Yeah, that's a really, that's really good. That was a lot of great information. And you're right. There is a lot of, that's like many rich veins of, of influence and, and homages there. And we know George is a fan of the genre and he actually lives in Santa Fe, which yep. has a history. Uh, it's also a place that has droughts and things like that. And not that he's probably lived through a lot of that in this time, you know, um, in his life being a wealthy man, but he would know mm -hmm. about the history of the place and the local history and what's happened there and be aware yeah. of, of, uh, things like that. And he does love film. He owns a theater. He does. And he, now he owns a railroad too. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, there you go. Uh, he yeah. probably owns some, uh, a stream or two as well, somewhere in there, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of American <laughs> author, uh, creatives use the, you know, the, Westerns, Western elements in their storytelling. It's not just uh, Americans. I mean, Sergio yeah, Leone is cool. a famous Western director and he's Italian. I mean, he, the spaghetti Western is what it was called. And it was because <laughs> it was all because of Sergio Leone, yeah. because he found something common. Similarly, you can see with the uh, uh, Kurosawa, he has a lot of, uh, for example, the Magnificent Seven was pretty much uh, an adaption of, well, adaption or blatantly stolen, depending on how you want to look at it from the Ronin films, but right. Kurosawa did use Western uh, elements in his Ronin films as well, because he was a fan of them as well. And so you can see that there's, you know, comp, you know, unique elements to all of them, but there's also commonalities. And that's all these remixes are, is just taking elements and just splicing them together. You know, if, if like I said before, Duncan Egg is all about playing with genres. So you take a genre and you give couple of people silver wigs and maybe throw a dragon in there. <laughs> and this genre was had its heyday when George was a younger man. Like this would have been one of the most popular genres uh, when he was a younger person. So he would have a lot of experience watching this and, and seeing these mm -hmm. actors. He's he's talked about it before. It, it's yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's not just him. There's a lot of creators, people who have made movies and written books and other creations that were heavily influenced by that generation of yeah. films and and all the different uh, offshoots of it. Like you said, it had a couple of iterations. Uh, it lasted long enough to have a a long cycle of, of a very robust cycle with full of differences and, and uh, ups and downs and and changes and different style influences. Like you said, Japanese, Italian, etc. Just it wasn't just an American thing. And it's still there now. I mean, heck, the the Mandalorian uh, had a did a great yeah. homage to the Seven Samurai, which is you know a magnificent. Oh seven yeah, and all that. All uh, that. Yeah, fan, fantastic episode. And yeah, I mean, you can even see like a Cowboy Bebop is a space western, and that's Japanese animation. Yeah, uh, I mean, and it's I mean, and adaptation is unique. I mean, one of my favorite adap adaptations of Macbeth is called Throne of Blood. Mm. It's adapted to feudal Japan. Oh. That's cool. It's actually a it's a it's a Kurosawa uh, it's a Kurosawa film and it's essentially an adaptation of Macbeth. But yeah, so 
I mean, adaptation is it's it's great. You can see nice nice creative things, and I love to see. Like I said, I love to read the Duncan Egg Tales because it shows George R. R. Martin's creativity and playing with these tropes of uh, different genres. Yeah, he gets to and zoom maybe, in on it more with like just because it's a micro setting, he gets to focus yeah, more on those details. And, and you don't have you know, and if especially if it doesn't fit in the main novel series, yeah, like yeah. if he says, "Oh, I want I want to make a a short, a short western story," but I can't do it because the song of the, the scope of the main novels is too large. Yeah. Like the closest thing he maybe gets to that is something like when Arya and Sandor like stop over in that yeah. village for a while. And that's not really a Western. I mean, it kind of is a Western feel a little bit to it. It's less so than say this, like a lot of Westerns would, as you said, a lot of these things were, were framed in the shadow of the civil war or something, another major event that affects a lot of the characters. It's like part of their history and really yeah. colors their, their personality. Yeah. I mean, what is it? What's that thing, That line, you know, we are all just puppets dancing to the strings of our fathers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where, and that's where these people all get their history from. I mean, yeah. you know, all of so much of your context and framing of the events that happened is from, you know, ancestral memory and things like that. And then things you're taught at the most formative ages, which are primarily going to be from your parents. Yeah. And those are, these are characters that when they were young, they didn't have decision-making power all that much. They were following in the footsteps, like you said, of the people that came before them. They were teenagers or young 20s. You know, they had maybe uh, ambitions and, and goals, but they're not the people pulling the strings, not at that point, if they ever are. And, you know, we got Eustace Osgray as... He's a he's a former lord and now a knight. That's certainly not nothing, but he he wasn't the reason the war happened. He had no say in in who fought who. He was just another guy that joined, you know, took his side and and you know what happened happened. Yeah. So let's talk about the education of a king theme. That's something that's a really big part of not just this story, but all three Duncan Egg stories. Although it's it possibly features the strongest in this one. There's a, I think there's a case to be made that the Egg's education is perhaps the most poignant in this one, especially his uh, one thing that a lot of you commenters, a lot of listeners have, met, have brought up is the way they relate on the topic of the peasants and attachments and, and they're getting them in trouble, getting them in danger, putting them in danger and, and how important that is as a king or as a, as a leader of any kind, taking care of the people in your charge and treating them as people, not as objects, not as commodities, not as just uh, like arrows in your quiver. And uh, that's something that we talk about a lot is Dunk being a lot smarter than he gives himself credit for. He's actually quite clever. The way he speaks with Egg, the things he selects that are important to discuss with him, as well as what we just talked about, how he resolves these problems. Like the way he turned it into a, a Western climax by forcing it into a, a, a duel rather than having it be a, a big conflict. That was pretty smart, right? That was clever. Oh, yeah. yeah, and and it, you can see it's also, it's not only clever because for one, it's like Widow Rohan could actually bring out more forces if she really wanted to. And all you've got are like the three watts who can barely hold the, the sharpened stick that they give them, they laughingly call a spear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because it, it, it turns it into a one-on-one, which is better for Dunk because of you know his big size and big strength. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, it's it's really motivated though by his human, by the human element because he wants to spare you know the three watts and stuff the fear. And I think in terms of the education of a king, this is where because like say for example, if Egg was always a, a, a prince, 
he actually probably wouldn't be dealing with the levies and the mustering of them and anything. Those would probably be uh, promulgated and down to, you know, Shire Reeves okay. and Knights that are actually administering these small local towns. So he would never actually see the fear in their eyes when they first have to get and they're in the, the muster yard and they're trying to train in anything like that. But Egg can't not see what's happening because he's with Dunk and he's traveling there. And so he actually, so in terms of this, it's the exposure that he's actually getting that he would have never gotten. And I mean, that was the big speech at the end of the Hedge Night about how, you know, his meat is always rare and, <laughs> and soft. Yeah. You know, he's never had to deal with any of that. And you have with Barris's speech to Kevin, where he knows what it's like to be hunted and be afraid. Yeah. Well, not really when you actually see the results yeah. when it goes on in the next book. But, <laughs> but Egg is actually seeing the fear because he's seeing it out in the faces of the three Watts. Yes. And so it's just a great exposure for him to actually get this. And also because of Dunk is making sure that he learns it, that uh, you can see the development of Egg going forward into something where, you know, Egg wants... I mean, it's, it's, un, it's un, not unreasonable to say that uh, Dunk wants Egg to be Baylor. Yeah, I mean, because, it's true. I think that's and, a great way to put it. And Dunk says, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do the best I can. And so he does it by acting like Baylor, especially when Egg can see. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, he has to learn that is interesting is, is how to get rid of some of his old prejudices and some of, and where we learn where, where some of his prejudices originate from. And this is a good place to start for us here. We have this talk about bastardy. We talked last time uh, in episode three about how it didn't even occur to Egg that Dunk was a bastard. Had it occurred to him, he might have been prejudiced against him because we see this prejudice come out and talking about how he's been educated on what bastards are. And this is a, it's kind of odd to think about, but let's have this quote first. The High Septon said all bastards are born to betrayal. Damon Blackfire, Bittersteel, even Bloodraven. Lord Rivers was more cunning than the other two, he said. But in the end, he would prove himself a traitor too. The High Septon counseled my father never to put any trust in him, nor in any other bastards, great or small. Bit of wordplay there, bastards great or small. They're great bastards, of course. But <laughs> Now, this is one of those prejudices kind of hard to wrap your head around. It's, it's neat because there's prejudices we see in A Song of Ice and Fire that are similar to ones we see in the real world. But like, never in my life has, have I heard someone called bastard with their parentage in mind. Like people just use that as kind of a generic insult, like you bastard, you know, like, and it's not even a very serious insult anymore. I have been called a bastard. Really? I have All right. Been. Well, I guess I I'm have to take that rare, back. Now I I'm aware of one. one. Okay. I, yeah, I think it's more of a, if you're very religious. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's just my own experience, but I think the point stands that it's, it doesn't have the weight in the real world that it has in, in Westeros, uh, even if it does have more weight than I'm giving it credit for, the, the places where it does have more meaning, where it does carry more social weight or more social negativity is in spots like this where people are, uh, they care more about birth. And of course, the royal family is who cares more about birth than them. That's about as, uh, they care about it as perhaps as much as anyone, if not more so. And he's talking about two types of prejudice here. It's kind of a wrapped up version. It's not just the, the religious aspect of, oh, they weren't married. Uh, they didn't love each other. It wasn't a union of commitment. It wasn't all these things. And so the, the bastard clearly has all these negative qualities because of that. But there's also the classist aspect here where, well, here's another quote from Egg. 
Lord Bloodraven's not even a real lord. That's just some stupid courtesy. He's a sorcerer and baseborn besides. So and baseborn besides. Of course, Dunk first corrects him on the difference between base and bastardborn, which is interesting that, that Egg would get that wrong. But he's clearly Egg is saying Bloodraven's birth makes him lesser. He's just saying that. He, his this micro argument about who he is. It doesn't say he's unworthy of the job for mer- in terms of merit. It doesn't say oh he's not good enough. He's not competent. That's not. No one says anything like that. Not well. Egg doesn't anyway. So. He's just parroting, kind of parroting what the High Septon said, maybe what Makar said as well. This comes out as well with the sulking versus Roth argument. It's like, are you sulking or is he Roth? It's like, well, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of difference in this case. But it's a very interesting set of dot connecting as well because it doesn't take much for Dunk to undo this, right? The fact that Egg realizes he's already trusting someone who's a bastard it puts him into a spot where he's either got to re- completely rethink his attitude or all of a sudden he has to start hating Dunk, <laughs> which is not going to work because he, he, he loves Dunk. He's a, he's a big fan of the guy. So, and to his credit, he seems to, it seems to move him pretty quickly in the right direction. What do you think about uh, this particular piece of education for uh, Egg? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because he needs to help to break Aegon's like frame of reference of the aristocrat. If he's actually going to be Baylor, he needs to break this frame. And, you know, in the aristocracy, because of dynastic succession, legitimate marriage versus bastards uh, is very important because yeah. it, it actually determines property inheritance and succession. But I mean, it's, it's also this, this idea that um, Egg, can't, Egg has to look past to see what everything is because that's exactly what Baylor did. Yeah. Uh, Baylor's the one who looked past the fact that, I mean, when, uh, you know, he said, yes, I, I broke, uh, I broke lances against, uh, Arlen of Penny Tree. And it's like, who cares about Arlen of Penny Tree with some hedge knight, but clearly Baylor remembered. So obviously the distinction of what you do is more important than what your birth is. And so that's what that lesson that Dunk is trying to instill in egg is that what you do is more important. And similarly with, uh, I mean, it's also, kind of interesting because again this this whole baseborn blood raven being baseborn egg smart he probably is saying it because he's repeating it mm-hmm. you know yeah. he, he hears it from somebody who's trying to insult bl- uh blood raven yeah and it's not not specifically against against that but it's like same with the you know he's a sorcerer and baseborn besides and this so yeah. clearly being baseborn is bad being a sorcerer is bad <laughs> hence hence why they do that and the, uh, this high Septon, by the way, that, were, that is probably the one who said all these things, is probably the same guy that Septon Sefton worked with. Because Septon Sefton worked at the Capitol. The high Septon died during the spring sickness. It's possible we're talking about two different high Septons, but it's almost certainly the same guy. And, well, the one thing the high Septon is right about, you know, giving someone a title doesn't change their nature. But the problem isn't that. It's reckoning of their personality in the first place based on their birth. It's the problem, not the, not the idea yeah. that the title changes them. And Makar, to his credit, doesn't, uh, apparently doesn't fully agree with this high septon either, where we get the impression that he does from this, but this is not firsthand information. And obviously, Makar later keeps Bloodraven on his hand, which might have something to do with politics and power, things like that. There's a lot that will have changed in the meantime. We're, at this point in, in the timeline, we're 11 years away from Makar becoming king. So it's, a lot can change in that time. Makar's opinion of Bloodraven can change. 
Maycar's opinion on Blood Raven may not have been as intense as we thought because it's all second, third-hand information. This comes back to some of the Stannis-Maycar parallels. Merit over birth. Stannis chooses Davos. And then Stannis also has Melisandre as an advisor, which is a little similar to Bloodraven advising Maycar in that there's a lot of mistrust there. There's the magic. There's the, the same coloring, the white skin and the red uh, exterior mm-hmm. and all that. So <laughs> a lot of parallels there. Uh, Maycar, Stannis, there's a lot going on. But of course, the first act of Egg's reign will be to arrest Bloodraven for the dishonorable execution of Aenys Blackfire. So it's possible Egg still has some hmm, bitterness or negativity towards mm. Blood Raven by the time that rolls around. But on the other hand, it's it's yeah. a, no, it's, it's it's probably because he executed Aenys. It's a fair charge. Him. Yeah, it's a yeah. yeah, it's it's dishonorable and all that other stuff. And I could imagine that uh, Aegon felt that if he didn't do anything, then you know, the Iron Throne's legitimacy would just be irreparably shattered. Yeah. And so he needs to assert, he needs to assert that this was Bloodraven's doing and he wasn't acting as an agent of the crown. And in fact, he was sullying the agent of the, cr- right, of yeah. the crown. Absolutely. And that, and, I mean, I mean, yeah, denigrating the honor of the king could actually be a real arrestable charge in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it's so, not quite treason, or would you call that treason? Because the reason I bring this up is because of the High Septon's prediction. He says, Lord Rivers was more cunning than the other two, he said. But in the end, he would prove himself a traitor too. And I, I don't think this is quite treason, but it's close enough. And it's like, yeah, he did prove himself unworthy. It, you know, in a it sense. depends on, it depends on how the characters in universe would, would conceive of treason. Yeah. You know, if, if they said that, you know, you're acting against the integrity of the state. I mean, if he has specifically acted to weaken the state and put himself in power, which may not probably isn't true, but that doesn't mean people can't say it. Yeah. Yeah, I would argue that's uh, not treason, but it's it's close enough to the high septon's point, you know, as a, as a mark of of semi foreshadowing there. Like it did sort yeah. of come to pass. Egg did have to take action to remove the guy from power. Well, let's move on to another recurring theme here: hedge knights romanticizing their lifestyle. Something we talked about in the past that you noticed as well here in in our notes is that well, Dunk can't afford a tent, so he's out in the stars. It's it's part of that part of the. The basics of it. I mean, it's just a fact. He, he can't afford to not sleep out under the stars. But he legitimately likes it. It's not one of those things he just tells himself. You don't get the sense that he's just trying to like, well, I don't want a tent anyway. I like the stars more. No, he seems to legitimately like it. He likes looking at the night sky. And heck, the night sky is a nice thing, right? Like, it's not a strange thing to imagine. But again, I do think it's important to note that it's not something he's just telling himself in vain to make him feel, feel better. He's not assuaging his poverty with creative reasons. And I think it's, he actually likes it, right? There's a, there's a saying when, you, when you're in the field, uh, it's called embrace the suck. <laughs> uh, and a lot of that is kind of, you know, you commiserate with your fellows, but it, it doesn't seem to apply here. But whenever I hear about Dunk saying, yeah, no, these, thing, these things are great. My, you know, I, a hedge is just as good a pavilion. Sometimes I think that I feel embrace the suck when it's, <laughs> you know, when it's pouring rain and I'm stuck and I'm stuck out doing, you know, in the field on drill or something like that. And it's just, hey, well, you, you can't you have to be here. So you might as well like it. It's, it's sort of in the same family as Gallo's humor. Not quite as bad as, you yeah. know, as that, but it's it's in that family. Uh, oh, yeah. No, they're making the best. Plenty, of it. plenty of plenty of uh, soldiers have great Gallo's humor. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, I mean, suppose they would. Huh? <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, and he likes the constellations. You know, he knows their names. I mean, that's the kind of thing you would get into if you're like spending a lot of time looking at the sky. And uh, it's in contrast to Sir Eustace describing the beauty of the sunset. Remember, we talked about that last time about 
the beauty of the sunset, despite people moaning and dying, and it's right after the battle. Mm-hmm. And um, in that sense, it was more of a sunset, though. That was there's also kind of an opposite going on here. Sir Eustace was sort of describing the setting of his own sun as well as the Blackfire sun, which those two things were linked. And Dunk's star is on the rise. Dunk is a young man. The best is yet to come for him. And he's living the life he kind of wants to live. Um, so it's not, yeah, it's pretty good. These things line up kind of nicely. Yeah. We've got a quote here. There were stars in the sky as well. More stars than any man could ever hope to count, even if he lived to be as old as King Jaehaerys. Dunk need only lift his eyes to find familiar friends the stallion and the sow, the king's crown and the crone's lantern, the galley, the ghost, and moon maid. But there were clouds to the north, and the blue eye of the ice dragon was lost to him, the blue eye that pointed north. So this line comes right after he's daydreaming, or dusk dreaming, rather, about finding his own father. So that's part of why he's thinking of the north, because one of Mm -hmm. the ideas one his father might be is on the wall. Uh, But this is pretty strong symbolism, the fact that the ice dragon, the blue eye is covered. It's a lost to him, um, yep. which I think means that he's not going north just yet. Maybe when the clouds part, then it will be time to go north. Uh, so I don't know. What, what do you think about that? You, obviously, he goes north at some point. Um, yeah, but- I, I think it just it just means that, uh, you know, don't don't look at the horizon. Uh, you know, mm. I, eyes on what's in front of you, not on the horizon. You know, mm. Dunk, Dunk is dreaming, but the, the problem, you know, with Stanfast is right in front of him. And it's just, it's maybe a, a setting way, the, char- the setting as character saying, no, 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 don't, don't go north. You have an adventure here. <laughs> You're not done here yet. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and at the end of the story, of course, you think, they think about going in that direction. They're either going to go west yeah. or north. And presumably there's going to be something in between that. So that's something yeah. we'll talk about more in the wrap-up episode. We're going to, we'll save that for yeah. later. And tying into the Western theme, usually it ends with the cowboy riding off to the sunset. Yeah, that's true. So, so it's now it's Duncan Egg riding riding towards the. Well, I guess the, the blue dragon is a stand-in for Polaris. Yeah, it's um, the North Star, kind of. Yeah, you're yeah. right. That's true. And instead of a like a cowboy hat, he's got a floppy hat, right? <laughs> Straw big floppy hat. It's pretty close. Yeah. Along these lines, though, there's a lot more potential for Duncan Egg stories. They may not, you know, whether we get all 12 that George has planned or not seems uh, a separate question. But have you imagined scenarios or have you thought about places you'd like to see Duncan Egg go, um, given there's so well, much room to, to theorize? N- not just, not just places. Well, I mean, first off, I want him to go to the Westerlands because we don't have a, we don't have a, we don't somewhere in, we don't have a POV in the Westerlands. So we've never actually seen Castley Rock or Lannisport yeah, or anything like that. True. They haven't seen them yet, and I want to see them. But uh, I also want Bittersteel to be... when Because they, they even say in the, the the appendix for the Night of Seven Kingdoms, they say they're even going to go across the, the Narrow Sea. Mm. And it's like, that's a great thing to actually give us Bittersteel because he looms large he over the Blackfire rebellions, especially these later Blackfire rebellions. And so I actually want him to get into the story at some point. And I know he is because obviously he's pretty much set up to do so for the third Blackfire Rebellion. Yes. But I would really <laughs> like to see Bittersteel in a non-combat setting, which would, which would only really happen in Essos. Yeah, yeah. There's almost no way that Duncan Egg could like talk to him unless he was in prison, unless it was like right after the third rebellion when he was captured and before he was sent yeah. to the wall. That's the only time. So I think you're right. And, and it would, given that we have been told that they're going to Essos, 
it does seem sort of a natural idea. You might see parallels yeah. to uh, John Connington's chapters with the Golden Company. You might see something funny like Egg being like, we really, really don't want him to know who we are. Yeah. I'm also thinking if, if there is one in, in Essos, it'll, it'll might be uh, dealing with Tyroshi politics oh, between yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Kira, Kira and Rohan of Tyrosh's family because be really Tyrosh is an electorate. Yeah. So the reason you could probably guess that the reason why Kira of Tyrosh got married into Targaryens twice was to provide political counterbalance so that Tyrosh doesn't support Bittersteel and the Blackfires. Exactly. So that might be an interesting couple of chapters. Yep. And then we get to see Tyrosh, which has come up a lot. It's, it's an interesting place. Yeah. It's an outpost. And also, of the a fit, uh, you know, the fish out of water feeling like when, uh, when Tyrion listens to how the free folk all, like everyone speaks in council. And he's like, how do you get anything done? <laughs> or you know, we could see the same thing with, you know, in Tyrosh when they're like, everyone gets a vote. You know, all of these people get votes. And they're like, like voting? voting. Why, would, why would you do that? Or, or with all the colored hair, they're going to be like, Look at you all with your plain hair. Look at your undyed hair. You need to get your beard dyed. I don't know. There's nothing to dye on. Oh yeah. Let's yeah. let's hope that Dunk. Let's see. Let's let's have Dunk get a bad dye job, and he spent, <laughs> he spends the rest of his of the book regretting it, just like it like it's a bad tattoo. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> I'd like to see them go to the Vale. Uh, that would be fun. Maybe Crackclaw Point. Crackclaw Point just to have more Brienne parallels. Can I say yeah. the titles that we have potentially? Just real quick just I think will be relevant. Sure. That of course we were talking about the village hero. We haven't mentioned the she-wolves of Winterfell mm -hmm. and there's the sellsword, which we were just talking about, but there's also the champion, the Kingsguard and the Lord Commander. Right. Um, which in terms of us thinking about different genres, I have to wonder like for the she-wolves, what that would be. Um, I think Political the sellsword, thriller, yeah, exactly. would be like that. The sellsword seems like that's pretty war-centric right yeah, there. Yeah, that could be where we get the Golden Company or whatever. But you would imagine mm. one of these coming up would be a horror thriller mm. type thing. Like, I, there would be something that was pretty, pretty horror. Um, that makes sense. And by, that might be summer. That might be summer hall, though. Yeah, that's okay. true. That's that true. That would be, or, or yeah. that could be a, or that could be a disaster flick. Yeah, that, that, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good point. Uh, I'm, th I'm thinking the the Lord, or not the Lord Commander, the King's Guard specifically, either the King's Guard or maybe the Lord Commander. Will be with, against uh, Lionel Baratheon. Yeah, that could be the champion. That would be that would make sense as well. But it could also be the champion. But I, I mean, as I understand it, at that point he is Lord Commander. I think you're right. But that could be easily be a, a fun, a more um, like a high stakes, not not an act. Well, I mean, it could be an action piece. Yeah. I mean, it could be you know you could see you could see Dunk maybe doing something at Storm's End similar to what Barristan did at uh, uh, Duskendale or something yeah, like that. Yeah. To kind of earn the audience. Right between line all then it comes then it culminates in the showdown let's uh let's move on to something we talked about doing uh we we gave you guys a brief preview of this ahead it's called the lion's eye view now six years ago was the first episode we did together that was the red grass field that was a lot of fun we tried to figure out everything we could with the way the battle played out with what happened, we filled in the blanks when there's nothing to know. We triangulate or, or make our best guesses and work with what we have. And it's a pretty big battle. I mean, massive battle, really. But what we didn't do was look at it from Eustace's point of view, like a soldier's or a knight's point of view, rather than uh, we looked at it as from the high level view, like from the top down, like looking at all the armies at once. What would it be like to be on the inside? facing it all with the dust and mud and blood and everything and the confusion and chaos 
Well, we can, we're going to take a stab at that. First of all, a little bit of setup. Also, by the way, for those of you out here, since we talked about this so thoroughly six years ago, you know, a few of you might need a little bit of a recap here. 85,000 was our high-end guess on how many soldiers were involved on both sides. Could have been lower, maybe. I think 70K was our low-end guess, but this is a pretty large amount, one of the largest battles of all time in Westeros. Yeah, we said it was roughly equivalent to the uh, Ruby Four. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Because roughly the same number of kingdoms were there. Yeah, and had a similar sort of ish result in that with the death of one of the leaders, that was sort of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here, so the vet and tell, as usual with these medieval style battles, you very often have three main organized groups on both sides, the vanguard, the center, and the reserve. Now, that's not all the armies, of course. There's other people, especially in this battle, there were people just arriving during it constantly because it was a, a very touch-and-go situation that developed quickly. It wasn't like, all right, three weeks from now, we're going to meet in front of King's Landing and have this battle. No, Damon made a move for the capital. The loyalists made a move to stop him, and, well, it was very hurried. So Vanguard, led by Damon himself, the center led by Gorman Peak, who's obviously a big part of these stories, and the reserve commanded by Bittersteel. We guessed at the time that Eustace was in the center under Peak. Uh, he would have all the Standfast men with him, probably some unnamed household knights. He probably had more men back then, right? His house has yeah. fallen farther into decline, and it's been 15 years since the rebellion. Yeah. So he probably had more dudes then. Certainly his yeah. sons were there. And uh, Edwin, Harold, and Adam. Those were the three. Edwin's the oldest, and Harold. And Adam, of course, is the one Lady Weber fell for. And she resents Eustace taking him to war. But it wasn't unusual for Adam to be there. I mean, he was 12 which is the same age as Damon's twin sons, Aegon and Aemon, or Edric Dane is 12. Edwin and Harold were already knights. Knighthood as a teenager is not super common. It's not uncommon, exactly. But I would guess that Edwin and Harold were probably at least 10 years older than, than Adam. They were probably in their early 20s, if not a little older. I would say at the very least, they were at least 16 or 17. Yeah. Probably 17. 17's the low end. I agree. Because, I mean, you hear, you hear about the people that are, like, super legendary knights. They get knighted really early in this 13, 14. But these are the Jamie Lannisters and all those types. And nothing nothing yeah. we have in the text suggests that these are the same level of sword virtuoso. Yeah, it's, it seems like he would have mentioned that if his son, one of his sons was yeah. really ridiculously good. It would have been some story about how he finally died or what finally got him. Or like, oh, yeah, no, if there was anybody that was that young, he might have even been taken into Damon's personal retinue. Oh, yeah, good point. Very because good point. Damon had the same, because Damon was knighted at a very young age. Yeah, so. yeah the, the youngest ever, I think, if we're told. The battle would have started with the two vanguards coming together. The vanguard forced yeah. the front. They smash into it, and we have... Damon was the warrior himself that day. No man could stand before him. He broke Lord Aaron's van to pieces and slew the Knight of Nine Stars and Wild Will Wainwood before coming up against Sir Gwain Corbray of the Kingsguard. This is pretty specific. Now, later parts of the description of the battle he gives are not nearly as are not nearly as precise. So what I'm picturing here is that he's in Gorman Peak's army, the center. Now, Gorman has to be able to see what's going on. He has to be able to watch the battle. He needs to see what's happening with the two vanguards. So he needs to know when to make his move. So it makes sense that if Gorman can see the action, Gorman can see Damon fighting, then that's probably Eustace's personal view. He's probably also sitting on his horse just watching all this happen. Uh, and of course, given that Damon's the man and that Eustace idolizes, that so many people idolize, of course, that's where your, your focus is going to be when you're watching this play out. Is that... Do you think I have got about right, Jim? I think so. And not all, it might be, I mean, the 
Damon's first van charge might have been all cavalry. He might have just had his cavalry going. And so the other units, the left or the center and the right, would have had infantry as well. So they may have just been marching slower. Okay. But especially if it was in the beginning, of, there wouldn't be as much dust kicked up in the battle. I mean, in later parts of the, bat- in the battle, you'll see a lot of sporadic information. And it, uh, it stands yeah. to reason that you know, there's lots of dust and stuff like that going up, as well as just the general chaos of battle. It's a lot harder to see things when there's actually, you know, people trying to kill you right next to you. That makes sense. Um, so I could see that uh, being the big, the big thing. And then I'm guessing that we saw probably something very immediate when Damon, when Damon charged in. I wouldn't be surprised if like the first charge, Damon took out one or two guys just right there. They don't necessarily have to be, you know, the Knight of Nine Stars or Wild Will Wainwood, right. just somebody. And it's just a truck hitting an egg when um when damon charges at the very beginning because i mean we, we see such such dramatic effect and we hear about now even if some of this is secondhand chances are really good that he sees a lot of early momentum very early on with his chart with his uh, charge yeah it looked really good yeah i mean it looks really good and then it looks even better because peak orders the advance so if we're if our earlier assumption was correct that eustace is in this this unit they are met by the Loyalist Center, led by Lord Hayford. Now, we're, mm. Lord Hayford was a staunch Loyalist, but this is where we know Gorman Peak was a pretty good fighter, apparently. He kills Lord Hayford personally, yep. and he kills Roger Penetree, Sir Arlen's squire. So that's a, a small little dot connection here that is, resonates pretty large in the greater story. And yeah. uh, this is when Eustace would probably have started actual hand-to-hand fighting personally, which he doesn't ever describe his own who, who he fought, but surely it happened, right? Yeah, I mean, but it is entirely possible he just fought no-name footman. Yeah, so that's true, that's true. He just, he just wouldn't have known. Um, he's not like, yeah. uh, what's his name, who just gives names to his, like, the, that hedge knight that Brienne meets is like, ah, oh, you know, you would never fought the knight of the, of the red chicken and all. He just gives yeah. them, he gives them deeds since they don't have any. <laughs> yeah. Eustace isn't embellished quite as much, unless it's Damon. Eustace will embellish for Damon, but yeah, well, given a good Damon, it's fine. I'm not need to embellish too much. Yeah, it's true. That's <laughs> true. You don't need to exaggerate when you're that good, right? So it looked really good at this point for them. You have the Vanguard, the Black Vanguard is winning, and the Black Center appears to be winning. And the Loyalist Center apparently is collapsing and or disarray. Decent chance all of Osgrave's sons are still alive at this point. Maybe one of them's already fallen. It's, it's you know, we're, we're just guessing. But given how well things are going, there's a decent chance it's just going perfectly well in that sense. And then, then it starts to turn. Makar does a great job of revitalizing the defense, holds them. And of course, we're also yeah. told that Damon's chivalry is a big problem here. It's not, it's not a mistake. It is a mistake, but he doesn't call it a mistake. It's, like he, it's too chivalrous. Even when he's wrong, it's because he was good, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that, that's something that you see a lot with all like the lost cosmith and stuff like that. It's where they, they say it was a doomed struggle and things like that. But I mean, in, the, in fairness, I mean, given how much that Damon adhered to the strictures of chivalry, that was part of his brand so he would have needed to do things you know perform chivalrous acts in order to maintain his image and his leadership yeah so it was his it was a decision and he couldn't have known that it would have been good or bad at that point yeah so i mean i i could say it was i mean you could say it was a mistake after the fact but you can't say that he was making a mistake there it was just it was not the right judgment call yeah. 
And perhaps you could have said that he should have instead charged to try and either split the center and then roll up the line and pressure Makar or just gone and pressure Makar himself. But we don't actually see a play-by-play of the battle. So we don't even, I mean, it's entirely possible that it's like, oh, if only he hadn't, if he just run over Gwen Corbray, we would have won. Maybe that's not actually true. Yeah. But maybe it is. It would have so been we, we, we don't, but it doesn't need maybe we don't we don't, we don't have a we don't have a play by play. So yeah. we can't really analyze it the way we can with actual battles that like historian like the battle of midway or something. Right, where we have much better to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're much more sure about what happened. Uh and so let let's see if we can follow this action from here. You tell me if you agree with with my estimation here. What I think is happens next is Damon is shot down. Uh, his banners yeah. collapse. Somehow people. Yeah, I, I, that, that's important. Specifically, we need to say that his banner, his banner must have fallen over. Yeah. We talked about this in the Barristan episode. Yes. The banners are, are very Great important. Point, they're, yeah. si- they're signal uh, devices as much as they are embodiments of who you are. So specifically, if you see the, you know, let's, let's just even say that probably someone picks up the banner when it falls the first time and then it falls again. Yeah. And the arrows that's keep flying. Be the, yeah. Blood Raven. Yeah. Want that's that going to be that's going to be probably the big image mm-hmm. and that's what's going to cause panic as the the great the warrior himself the man who slew could just he was unbeatable is beaten that's such a hard yeah because you you got to figure that a lot of these guys just had this idea this instinct this feeling that they couldn't lose and it was going the the action to that point was proving that belief correct because they were winning they were doing so well and then it just suddenly it just stopped and everything turned the other way. And that's where a lot of the chaos begins. And this is why Eustace's description from this point on is, is even more chaotic. He says, I saw yeah. some of it myself. So my guess is what happens is the banners fall. Bittersteel charges to recover the sword or at yeah. least to help. Maybe he, he may not just be yeah. recovering the sword. He's just charging well, he, to help. He, he might have even tried to save, tried to save Damon. Yeah. He might have thought that Damon was still alive. He doesn't know he what's happening. To... He just knows the banners yeah. have fallen. And when he gets there, he's like, oh, damn, they're dead. <laughs> I better get the sword. Like, that's the only thing left to recover here. Because we know that Bitter, apparently when Bittersteel duels Bloodraven, he's got Blackfire in hand at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's Blood, Blackfire versus Dark Sister. Yeah, which is, sounds pretty epic. So since Bittersteel's the reserve, the reserve charges towards where the Vanguard's position is, that means the center is now where Eustace is, is yeah. now the effective rear, because there is no reserve anymore. And that goes really badly because Prince Baylor emerges from the south and smashes into the rear, which is now the center, uh, since Bittersteel's yeah. reserve is now moved away. So they probably weren't and prepared it's the for ha- yeah. It's the hammer and anvil. So what they do is they end up using the momentum of the cavalry to push them against Makar, mm-hmm. um, who at this point probably has had, he's probably had to, I mean, he's had his own. He's probably had to rally the center and probably had uh, riders go out and try and recover as many people from the shattered uh, uh, van as possible to kind of bring them back into the, into the thing. But I would imagine that it was just, then it sandwiches them together. And since Osgray is in the center, what he ends up getting happening to him is that he gets end up ends up being pushed and surrounded, and then eventually the white flag is thrown. Yeah, his sons. I think that's probably given how much he focuses on the the hammer blow and the what if about that. Mm-hmm. I think that's where his sons die. I totally agree. I think that's that's very accurate. It's it's our my best guess. Obviously, we, we don't know for sure, but yeah. so you're basically saying they were they were pretty much became the meat in the sandwich or the sword between the hammer and the anvil, the, the item getting yeah. beaten on. And one of the reasons this is so devastating for an army is imagine that you're at, you know, you're at some 
uh, event out in the street and it gets really crowded. And uh, if you've ever been in like a, a, a push of, of a crowd, like a surge where you, yeah. your arms are pushed against each other, you can't really move very well. That's what's happening here when the hammer yeah. and anvil collide. You've got soldiers that can't even lift their weapons or extend their arms to, to defend themselves or to do much at all. So yeah. you can see why that would be uh, yeah. horrible for an army. to. And if you lose your footing, you get trampled. Yeah. So yeah. it, it's just so all you can focus on really is trying to stay upright because, you know, if you fall, your your head's going to get smashed in even purely by accident. Yeah. Um, as unrealistic yeah. as it may have been, the episode of the TV show where they're surrounded and there's big piles of bodies is kind of gives you the idea when John is like, can't breathe because there's yeah. so many people pressed around him. Forget the details that kind of captures the essence of oh, it. that's the battle of Cannae. that's the battle of Cannae. yeah yeah right the, the where the romans were surrounded by the, the carthaginians even though the carthaginians had fewer men it was pretty expertly done it gives you an idea of just how awful it was and this is what eustace is probably at this point he remember he tells us that he saw adam standing over harold's body edwin's the oldest i would guess that edwin's already dead at this point or, or somewhere else because if if harold's lying there on the ground and the, the squires guarding him, the older brother, you would think would have also done that if he had been around. If uh, Given that Edwin was probably a fully fledged adult, he may have been in his own battle. That's true. If he wasn't okay. dead already. Yeah, so. that's true. That's very true. So, uh, but we also know what type of, uh, like what, uh, it was a, a knight of House Smallwood that killed Adam. Those were rivermen, not Dornishmen or Stormlanders, uh, yeah. who were the ones who smashed into the rear. So my guess is maybe when they got smashed into from behind, they were near the front. So it was the, they were yeah. perhaps... They were killed by someone in Makar's unit. Yeah, so they were they were pressed up against the anvil rather than hit by the hammer yeah. uh, to if yeah. we make our metaphor work that way. <laughs> and yeah. what, what do you think? Was he captured or did he, did he run away? What do you think? It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, given that he was... If he was actually in between the hammer and the anvil, he probably was was captured. Yeah, I think um, he run away from that. Because, I mean, especially... I mean, if he ran away, he would have probably tried to make make it to Bittersteel yeah. and then follow him into exile. And none of that happened. So my guess is, is that he was... Yeah. He was captured. Yeah, that, uh, totally agree with that. Because he he regrets not going into exile with Bittersteel. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't necessarily... And that, that suggests that he, yeah. he just didn't have the possibility of even doing so. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting too, we say Bittersteel turned the route after recovering Blackfire. It's also possible Eustace was part of that. He was, he was running and then mm -hmm. Bittersteel helped turn him around. Uh, but if he was trapped in the center, mm -hmm. probably yeah, not. Yeah, I don't think so. I think he was always, I think he was always in the center. And so he Agreed. was always yeah. with uh, Gorman Peak. I agree. That's, that's more likely, but I wanted to throw that possibility out there. Yep. And so one of the things much later, in, back to the actual story, Sir Eustace still pours out libations for his boys whenever he opens a new cask and says, to the king. This is told to us at the start of the story. It doesn't say which king, though. So it's part of the, the sneakiness, the slow reveal of, of what's mm -hmm. happening there. A little more about the dedication to chivalry. Here's a, a great take from Nina. In Eustace's mind, it was Damon's dedication to chivalry, which was his undoing. That only Damon had ridden over Gwen Corbray and left him to his fate. He might have broken Makar's left before Bloodraven could take the ridge. The red grass field became sort of a morality play for sure. You see, that's a great way to put it. Like the good guy was too good and the bad guys were too evil. The whole shooting him from a ridge, this dishonorable method of killing someone in battle and all that and kin slaying and all that. Yeah, it is very much cast in that light of, of good versus evil. It wasn't just we're the more just cause, which he believed that for sure. 
But yeah. this is he 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 frames it as good versus evil, which I don't agree with that. I don't even agree that necessarily that it was a just cause, but you can maybe even make you can maybe make that case. But good versus evil, mm-hmm. no, I don't think so. That's ridiculous. No. Uh, but he did kind of over the years, it's kind of set in his mind that way. <laughs> well, I mean, the same thing with the, in World War One, which a lot of people don't really hold up as a good and evil cause. There was talk from like British soldiers that captured German soldiers and vice versa. It's like, how can you possibly be thinking that you're fighting for good? We're fighting for good. Yeah. And it was just, it, it, it was exactly that way. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that, those rationalizations work, but uh, I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good thing. You know, he's turning it into a storybook and turning it into the storybook also kind of lessens the hurt in a way. Yeah, that's true. You know, it, it's, it's one thing if you, you know, you fought so nobly and so honorably for a cause that was so noble that it was doomed to fail. <laughs> too good to live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too, too good for this sinful earth. <laughs> and there's other, these little details that are mixed in like a, the phrase, a white arrow in a black spell or the seven arrows piercing him, which is, you know, meant to make yeah, us think the perversion of the, of the faith's holy number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. By an old God's worshiper. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So there's a mixed in with all these are all these what ifs, right? We've discussed some of them already. And, and he really, he has this line here. That's where most of the what ifs are, are encapsulated. Sir Eustace cradled his wine cup in both hands. If Damon had ridden over Gwaine Corbray, if Fireball had not been slain on the eve of battle, if Hightower and Tarbuck and Oakheart and Butterwell had lent us their full strength instead of keeping to one foot in each camp, if Manfred Lothstan had proved true instead of treacherous, if Storms had not delayed Lord Bracken sailing with the Mirish crossbowmen, if Quickfinger had not been caught with the stolen dragon's eggs. So many ifs, sir. Had any one come out differently, it could have all turned the other way. Then we would be called the Loyalists, and the Red Dragons would be remembered as men who fought to keep the usurper Daron the Falseborn upon his stolen throne and failed. So there's a lot of bitterness in there, of course. It's, it's an emotional outpouring as much as it is a real breakdown of events. I mean, a lot of these are close calls, for sure. But what about the close calls on the other side, right? <laughs> I mean, there had to be close calls that went their way as well as ones that didn't. I mean... No, like what if they were able? What if uh, Craig Hall was able to actually defend the uh, the pass and in, into the reach? Uh, what if? Yeah. You know. You know. It's like what if, uh, what if David had been arrested, right? Like what if he hadn't gotten out of the red keep? The whole war doesn't yeah, even happen. Or, I mean, like, know, yeah. <laughs> what if? What if Donald Aaron hadn't slipped on a ketchup packet and actually had the. <laughs> had it break and then, you know, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, the thing is, you know, chances, I mean, now the, the side that wins, is it necessarily going to look at the what if so much as the side that loses? That's true. That's true. Uh, um, <laughs> but, you know, true. if it had gone the other way, how many uh, former Reds would have been saying that same exact speech to, yeah. uh, you know, Duncan's seventh child who ends up being, <laughs> walking around with a secret hedge knife? You know, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> He, there's the mirror line about the mirrorish crossbowmen, but we talk about how Baylor's army got there just in time. Like there were lots of people that just barely got there or that didn't get there. He's kind of, it's very selective, which ones he's mentioning that didn't quite get there. Now with Lord Bracken and the mirrorish crossbowmen with hired help, you got to figure he really did. He really was trying to get there on time, especially given yeah. the Brackens were, were pretty. I mean, you had to pay, you have to pay for them. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, when you get into cases like the late Lord Frey or Tywin waiting to see who wins the Red Fork before pouncing on King's yeah. Landing, 
Le- yeah. We do have an example of that. Leo Longthorne, the Tyrell Lord, did that here. He waited to see who won. Or, or he said he was... He didn't say that, but he did. That's pretty much what he did. And there's probably part of... Uh, a big part of what was happening in the battle here is thinking about how Zuzu fought for both sides. Like uh, that's mentioned here. Oakheart, Butterwell, Hightower, and Tarbeck. They fought for both sides. There's a lot of examples of that in the real world where you have a set-piece battle happening between two major factions, and there's a third faction that's just kind of standing there waiting to see who starts winning before they take uh, one side or the other. So they're literally sitting there with their army waiting for, uh, waiting to decide who to join. <laughs> so that really puts the pressure on the early stage of the battle, doesn't it? Like, if one side starts losing, they might start, that might be it, because the third party might join on the side of the winners. Because they're certainly not waiting to see who's losing to help the loser, right? Like, that's not yeah. happening. It happens with, uh, it happens in wars, too. I mean, I think of the China, China entering the Korean War after the North Korean. I mean, because, I mean, that is one thing where the, they help the losing side, because by that time, North Korea would be pushed all the way to the Yalu River. But, I mean, there was ideological elements towards the Korean War. The, the Chinese would have never entered on the sides of the Americans. Ah, um, right. <laughs> You know, it's just, I mean, the perfidious Lord Stanley, you know, who charges uh, Richard in the back at Bosworth Field. Yep, that's one of the ones that's I was thinking the, of for sure. Bosworth is a big yeah. example of that. But it, it's just, it shows how important that this momentum is. It's like you can see how Damon just starts like a snowball. And it's really only, I mean, say it's a lucky arrow and, you know, Blood Raven fires all of his shots and doesn't get anybody. Well, then what happens? It's like, oh, well, then somebody just charges up and kills Blood Raven. But uh, that momentum would have kept going. So momentum is big, but especially in feudal armies where there's you know these keystone armies where you know they're it really is the the lord and such a big morale hit when the lord uh, falls. That's when it it falls and then it snowballs in the other direction. Yeah, because Damon dies, and then oh boy, everything goes south. So and in an era where there's where a lot of the uh, soldiery is not necessarily professional, well, I mean you're going to get that. Yeah. And they know, too. Like you said, it works both ways. Like, the, the, the loyalists, when they see Damon's banners dip, they're like, oh, my God. We were losing. We're, we're we were getting crushed. <laughs> we, actually, we actually have this. Yeah, like, what a surge of going from, like, intense fear to, wow, we have a chance, or to, wow, actually, we're going to win. Or maybe even, wow, we've won. If Damon's dead, that's it. You know, some people may have gotten, like, maximum confidence from that. So, yeah. yeah. And the, the houses that stand on the side, too, it's important to note that a lot of them... It's, a, it's some of the most powerful ones because they have the most to lose by being on the wrong side of the eventual winner. Like the houses, there's the smaller scrappy houses that aren't at the center of realm politics. Their largesse doesn't depend on their political positioning as much. They don't, they, they don't want anything to change that. But the ones who are lower down the ladder who want to move up, it's an opportunity to move up by taking the right side. Gambling makes more you, sense. Yeah, that's why you didn't see any of the Lords Paramount actually join Damon's side overtly. The only, the closest one you had was Leo Longthorne. Yeah. And given that the Reach was the capital of Blackfire support, it's understandable why he would at least have to try and do something. Yeah. But I mean, but, but I mean, you know, there's no way to go, there's no way up for the Lannisters or the Aarons or anything like that. Yeah. So it makes sense that they're going to defend the status quo because they're on the top and well, they're number two on the status quo as opposed to, you know, the only, only the royalty is step higher. Yeah. Whereas all right. the, all these number two houses, the Ironwoods, you know, for example, mm-hmm. or a lot, all of these uh, families that have a better blood claim to 
the reach than House Tyrell and stuff like that. Chance or, to move up one spot, yeah, exactly. To be to yeah. number one, like yeah, to, to be the new the, the new guy in charge of that region. Yep, to be the new uh, High Lord, yeah, that makes yep. a lot of sense. So one of the what ifs that I really wonder about that I want to get your take on, since it's very military uh, in its understanding, is it, let's say he went, let's say the Damon gets through the armies, gets the way to King's Landing is clear. Eustace is like, oh, we would have just rolled into King's Landing. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, King's Landing's like, it's pretty hard to take. The Red Keep is, is extremely hard to take. And the city itself, it's not that easy. Maybe loyalists would have let them in. That's entirely popular. You only yeah, need one let in. That's, that's one thing. And let, let's be honest. I mean, the Gold Cloaks sold out King's Landing yeah. pretty easily yeah. in Dance of the Dragons. Absolutely. And if, and if everybody thinks it's the losing side, they're going to try and bail out and save their own neck. Definitely. Um, that happened a lot, actually, in sieges. A lot of times, a tower would, been, would have been bribed, and they'd let men over in the night, and they'd open the gatehouse and let them in. It only takes one. So yeah. one that's, that's what I... Because, I mean, we don't know if the Blacks even had a navy. Mm. So yeah. you can't lay siege to King's Landing without a navy because it's a port. Yeah. Um, they have had the red wine fleet. We don't. We don't know for sure. It, it yeah, but unless, sense, unless they had the unless they had the red wines of the Tyroshi, then they're not going to be able to actually starve King's Landing into submission. Yeah. What they're going to need to do is to find a way to just essentially bribe to get their way in, and then you. And then I mean, once you get to Magor's Holdfast and you're actually trying to siege the Red Keep, you could actually do that. Yeah. Let's say like the best possible uh, scenario happens for the Blacks. And not only do they uh, win at Redgrass Field, but they kill Bittersteel. They either kill or capture Baylor and Makar. And all of that, I mean, you know, they could try and capture Bloodraven, but he's going to end up with a sudden case of dead um, <laughs> yeah. if, if Bittersteel gets a, <laughs> That's true. is anywhere <laughs> near him. But ba- I, mean, I can understand uh, Damon making sure that Baylor, Baylor and Makar, if they were taken alive, would not be harmed. But I mean, who's going to lead the armies? If Donald Aaron, Lord Hayford, Baylor, Makar, Blood Raven, all those guys are gone. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Who do you have left? That's I mean, Gwen Corbray's gone. I mean, how many other Kingsguard? I mean, chances are really good at least the one other Kingsguard member was actually guarding Makar. So you would have lost some of the members of the Kingsguard. Who's actually left? So and what do you have? You have the Castle Household Guard. Hmm. So yep. at that point, I mean, he might have just had to flee to uh uh Dayron might have had to flee to, you know, Essos, which is the the destination, uh, the destination, uh, destination vacation for any Targaryen yeah. exiles. <laughs> yeah, maybe he just goes to I mean, Dragonstone, or maybe he has to go all the way to Essos. Yeah, I mean, he he might go to Dragonstone if, if he doesn't have an if black if the Blacks don't have a navy, then they have to go and build one, and uh, so they could flee to Dragonstone. Where he thinks of his next move, but uh, he might have to flee. Yeah. I mean, and in the meantime, I mean, go- Damon sits the Iron Throne and starts ruling, and yeah, he doesn't even have to. Yeah. Daron sitting on Dragonstone, yeah. it's a loose end, but you know, once the throne's yeah. captured. Well, I mean, they, they just, you just have to purpose build a navy to actually yeah. take them out. Yeah, it would have um, it would have taken a lot longer, basically. Unless, yeah. unless the Valarians <laughs> stay loyal because he's on Dragonstone. That's true. Then it yeah. an, there's all sorts. Of, this, this is the problem. This is yeah. this is so many ways. Show, but, yeah, how but many yeah, what ifs there are? <laughs> you, they could consolidate afterwards and win if they commit win commandingly at Redgrass Field. But I think that's not because it's like, oh, we'll just steamroll into King's Landing. No, what's going to happen is a bunch of red loyalists are going to jump ship. Yeah. And that's what's going to enable the rest of the big group. But that's normal. That is normal. I mean, right. I mean, think, think about what happened when they went down to Storm's End and the Reach said, oh, yeah, no, no, you want, you, you yeah, want. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. Yeah. 
So, so he's got some points, but there's a lot of assumptions he's making. And this is a problem with what ifs. Like there's just, you can't be sure. You can't take them too far. They're fun, but they're not uh, something you can, you can put a lot of stock yeah. in. As, oh, as I love what ifs, but yeah, no, they're. It's like this phrase, history is written by the winners. That phrase has a lot of truth to it, but it's, it can go too far. And I think this is an example of that. For example, when he says that they would be looking at Daron as the usurper who fought, you know, the false-born usurper or whatever. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I think that Aemon the Dragon Knight, one of the most famous knights who ever lived, won a trial by combat proving that Daron was true-born. I don't think the history is going to omit that. Damon's not going to go in there and tell them to erase that from the history books. No. <laughs> That's the thing. Maybe, history can be written by the maybe, winners, and if maybe, they lie... Maybe they'll do a legalistic argument where they specifically say, well, no, it was actually phrased wrong. Yes, yes, right? <laughs> so. I would love that. <laughs> a, a quibble over, over a, a punctual, over a conjunction piece of punctuation. <laughs> it's like there's a, there should have been a comma there, yeah. It's like, no, money down. <laughs> Lionel Hudson, it. Yep, Lionel Hutzing it. Those commas play do a lot of work, and that's another thing about like the historical record and and you know history being written by the winners. It doesn't erase the history that came before it, right? Egregious historical distortions usually, maybe not usually, often get corrected by future generations. So even if like they, Damon's generation tried to act like he was true born or all these other things, like there's too many facts out there, there's too many people that know the truth, too many things already written down. So I think Eustace is going a little too far with that argument. Not that Damon ruling and winning wouldn't have made Westeros significantly different, but, no. but maybe not. Maybe his dynasty lasts one generation and it gets wiped out. After all, the spring sickness probably still oh, yeah. happens. Like, we're not, oh, yeah, no. right? So, like, they could have just yeah. all been wiped out. <laughs> yeah. Damon being on the throne is not going to stop microbes. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> it just, it just is. But, I mean, it, it's like, you know, a lot of things could change, and it's entirely possible that then there's reaction against the changes that are being enacted. So, yeah. you, you can't, you can't, say, I mean, you could have a lot of fun, and you could play CK2, uh, Game of Thrones mod, and win as Damon and see what you do. I know I've certainly done that. Same. Um, <laughs> You know, when you say what if, it's like whenever you're playing with what ifs, it's always, uh, well, what if it didn't go that way? Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, that's no more valid than the what if in general. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I think we know what Eustace Osgrave's favorite Marvel show is. What's that? The new what if show. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> what we yep. need uh, ourselves. <laughs> that's true. We do. The last bit I want to say about his what ifs is this bit about the stolen dragon's eggs. We wonder what they were doing there. Like, was it about money to be able to sell them? Probably not, because it doesn't seem like they were hurting for cash. No, Nina's, no. I mean, they were able to mint their own cash. Yeah, right. Coinage. They seem to have plenty so, of money. Like, it's, Nina's suggestion is that it was a, a another, like, along the lines of the sword, like a symbol of legitimacy, like tying yeah, them to the I mean, Targaryens. Could be, could be used as that. I mean, with the, the loss of the, uh, I mean, with the loss of Aegon's crown in Dorne, it, Blackfire is the only symbol of Aegon the Conqueror, but everybody knows the dragons are extinct, but dragon eggs still are there. Yeah. I mean, I know Stephen Atwell, when we were talking about it in the Battle of Redgrass Field episode so many years back, what if the, the dreams are actually for real and there's an actual hatchling that comes out of there? Which we, we talked about that, I think. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, and it's like, well, I mean, and I think you, even you said, it's like, well, if he actually hatches a dragon, Daron the second is probably like, fair cop. You know what? Yeah, that's, I really can't argue with that. Um, but uh, I mean, Blood Raven would. Blood Raven yeah. would absolutely strangle a dragon hatchling. Yeah. Um, 
just because I'm more of a mundane guy, I go I go with what uh, Nina is saying about the uh, about it being a strong symbol of legitimacy mm-hmm. and and to, to pre- present and project himself as the Targaryen. I mean, he's he's very clearly assuming the Aegon hero myth. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, he lives in an illiterate society. It's a good idea to do it. But uh, I think that that's what he's trying to do, is trying to gain legitimacy. Or, I mean, hey, may- maybe somebody did it. Maybe Quickfinger did it to get in good with Aegon. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Like, it's probably possible. <laughs> like, Damon might have been like, don't steal dragon eggs. What's wrong <laughs> with you? We're chivalrous here. <laughs> <laughs> that's a what if I wonder about is if Damon had won, whether bastardy would have been viewed differently. You know, when they just they start, to, they start to like um, they start to trickle down a little bit. On, but on the same on the same hand, I mean, Ronard Storm was a was a Storm King who was a bastard yeah. and a pretty effective one, and they still have bastard prejudice. That's true. Yeah, it wouldn't have gone so, away entirely. I mean, it's just, that's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's it's just it's it's hard to to erase prejudice, especially in yeah. one generation. Yeah, that's for sure. That, that that's really more of a you know that that's a, a generations long effort. Very just much is. so. Yeah. Uh, let's take a few questions here. Nina says, closing out the sworn sort with the best guest. Right on. Uh, see, every single time when I get told that I'm the best guest, I'm like, well, then the only way I can go is down. <laughs> ah, the problem. My chair, will, my chair will fall apart right here and it's going to turn <laughs> into a blooper reel. Something. Austin Flowers, good take here. Isn't Dunk a Hercules metaphor? 12 stories planned like Hercules had 12 trials. He's also big and unsure of his lineage. Hey, that's pretty good. I never thought of that. No, I, I didn't even think about that. No, that's a good one. That's a good one, Austin oh. Flowers. I like that. Yeah. I'm not sure I have anything to add to it other than acknowledging that it's a very yeah, good No, it's, it's a good... It's a good. think on it, I suppose, before next week and think about what the 12 twi- trials are. Okay, yeah. Well, to, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll do some more research on it. That's a good point. Yeah. Great. Uh, good rabbit hole to get us started on there, Austin Flowers. Right. Well, let's see which one, which one is cleaning the stables. <laughs> Uh, Nina says, Jim's point about the stories being individual adaptations strengthens my thought of the village hero being a sort of seven samurai. Oh, yeah, definitely, because it's possible we that is for folks who don't know if we haven't explained this very well. The village hero is one of the planned titles. It's probably the next yeah. one. It's probably number four. A lot of theories yeah. about that one. We'll, we'll get into the details of what some of the theories are around it. But given the scenarios where the seven samurai takes place, which is in a, in a village yeah. setting that does fit extremely well. Yeah. And I mean, it could be penny tree or something like that. Yes. It could be, yes. penny tree. and it all, I mean, if it's in penny tree, this might also be, cause as Shay was talking about a romantic comedy, <laughs> the, uh, for Duncan Egg, this might be the start of black Betha and eggs meet cute. Yes. Yeah, I had two thoughts here, actually one, um, currently the, the village hero is the fifth novel, you know, she wolves is the fourth. No, no, it was the other way around. Okay, it, the wiki, the wiki does not wiki have is, that. I think change. the wiki is wrong. Okay, yeah. anyways, but it's not a big deal. Either. Yeah, well, if the village hero mm-hmm. is the next one, then Egg is is still very young to have a romantic comedy. Happen. Yeah, no, that okay. Um, that's, that's, there's that. that's true. That's um, true. But in terms of a romance, I was bringing up Dale of Targaryen mm. and the Tarth. Oh, you know, okay. that, that would be a good straight romance type yeah. thing. Okay, that makes sense. Guilty Undertaker says, is Walder a fancied up version of Watt or is Watt short for Walder? No, I don't think so. I think Watt's just a separate name. Um, yeah, it's just the same. I don't know that it's short for anything. We were, t- I yeah. mean, I, I, Watt is apparently short for Walter generally. Oh, like, is it? That is a thing. And oh. so I think in world we can say that, you, I think we should make that comparison. Okay. Between hmm. Walt and Walder. I guess, I Walders guess are all over the place. It. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess the problem is if you do the shame nomenclature for Walder, your name would be Wad. Yeah. <laughs> <And> that, <laughs> so maybe Wad maybe is just a, a concession to it just not being too ridiculous. <laughs> Wad. Yeah, I don't want anyone calling me Wad. 
Stefan B. wants to know about the naming convention. He notices the difference, the Wendell Wyman uh, being so similar to the Manderleys. That's a pretty straightforward answer. The Manderleys are from this area originally. In fact, one of the three castles held by House Peak used to belong to House Manderley. And of course, the Peaks are also nearby here. I, I mean, they still call themselves the the champions of the Order of the Green Hand. Yeah, exactly. Even though, mm-hmm. even even you know, they're they're reaching the uh, in the north. Yeah, true that. True that. Dornish Dame says we also see a lot of this things like Baseborn versus Bastard in A Dance of Dragons with Solis looking down on the Free Folk and their cultural traditions. Only Garrett Kingsblood and his kids and Val are given any sort of status because quote unquote they're royal. Even though this is mm-hmm. completely her uh, projecting her cultural views onto a different culture. Well, that's why it works out that way for her because yeah. of those those judgments. Yeah, these class strictures are very important. I mean, how many? I mean, who was it? The uh, the orphan of the green blood that was in uh, Arion's little party, and Doran's like, Ugh, they gossip like fishwives and stuff like that. <laughs> this cultural posturing is just all over the place. Yeah, it really is. The sworn shield. Oh, that's a good idea. Nina suggests the sworn shield. I mean, why not? I mean, we need more Brienne par- parallels. Oh, yeah, for the Dale of one, yes. Yeah, that I works. Uh, yeah, that's a good one to tie Also, what you're about we were Dale. wondering about um, names for when he goes up to Winterfell because it wouldn't be the She-Wolves of Winterfell. That doesn't really fit in with yeah, the naming a, convention. Nickname, yeah. We're like, what would it be? You know, and my guess, and this is not very serious, is the conciliator. The conciliator. <laughs> nice, <laughs> he has yeah. to deal with all those different factions. I do think he's going to be in a mediating position there. Um, uh, could you imagine a grandiose thing like the peacemaker? Yeah. But it, it turns it turns out he, he's just settling petty high school drama. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I do think that's like what his role is going to be, though, at Winterfell. <laughs> yeah, he might be. Uh, Austin Flowers says, She Wolves of Winterfell sounds like a 1940s Abbott and Costello horror movie. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it could, yeah. <laughs> I had this picture, and Aziz will be able to picture it too, which is um, King of the Hill. Yeah. There's a there's an episode where Bill Dotrieve goes back to his family home in Louisiana. And there's three beautiful women there who have all lost their husbands and they want to continue the family though. Well, they all start hitting on Bill and coming to him in the night <laughs> and getting in bed with him and just really coming on to him very hard. And so I basically picture that you're in like this big spooky house and Women, you're coming into your room. Just straight up Brides of Dracula style. Makes a little more sense with Dunk as the sire than Bill Dotry. Well, he, he, is a him, he is a himbo. Yeah, he's a himbo. Dunk, Dunk is such a himbo. He is. He is. Uh, great comment from Rolling Knight here. Just in terms of framing Bloodraven, the prejudice against Bloodraven, given that he was Master of Whispers, that's another thing that works against him in terms of being trusted. Rolling Knight points out that there are isn't a single master of whispers in the history of Westeros that is someone that we consider trustworthy, that was viewed as a trustworthy person. And that's a good point. I can't think of one. I don't think there is one. They're all, just by the nature of that job, seen as, you know, deceivers and people who work with deceivers and thus, you know, dishonorable job, even though it's usually given to someone of rank. Yeah. Um, but it's also given to like torturers like Tiana of the Tower. So yeah, exactly. Uh, just, it's, it's, you know, that, that's another reason. You know, there's a lot of occupational baggage with that position. Absolutely. That, that would instill distrust. So here's something that I thought would be fun to discuss with you because you have a strong background and education in languages. Let's see. Let, we have a quote here. When Dunk is recognized by his accent. Dunk furrowed his brow. How did you know I was from King's Landing, Septon? King's Landers have a certain way of speaking. Now, we've seen this before. Actually, technically, we see this later in A Dance with Dragons 
It's just that we've seen it before because we reviewed Dance with Dragons more recently. Uh, and it's Tyrion talking with the sellsword Kem in the Second Sons. And it goes like this. The lad gave him a wary squint. Who told you I was from King's Landing? No one. Every word out of your mouth reeks of flea bottom. Your wits gave you away. There's no one clever as a Kingslander, they say. <laughs> I'm interested in this just as uh, like how these things form. It makes sense that the different regions have different accents. And mm. I, I'm just curious how these things develop. It makes sense that, you know, even if you speak the same language, different things happen, different people speak mm. different ways. Is there anything you can uh, add to this discussion that would so, help clear some of the fog away? So I'm very happy that you asked this question. So I actually don't look like a blithering idiot when it comes to, <laughs> to languages. This Teamwork. sounds like actually, yeah, this sounds actually like uh, King's Landing has a lot of, has a sort of a trade pigeon that they would, uh, that it's just kind of, just kind of bled over into their everyday speaking. And that makes a lot of sense. It, trade pigeons are essentially a, a mismatch of different languages that happen around areas of trade where there's a lot of different languages being spoken and words get assumed and kind of borrowed. You saw this in, in especially in medieval eras in places like London, oh, it's Constantinople, Baghdad, all of these major cities that were huge trade hubs would just have all of these different people talking and then these languages would keep getting picked up. Like, I mean, I mean, for example, I know because I've studied the Knights Hospitaller, the Knights Hospitaller, when they left the, or when they were kicked out of the Holy Land, they settled in uh, Rhodes. And over the time, they spoke kind of a mishmash of Greek and Latin. But you would see something similar, like I said, in, in Baghdad, you would have Arabic as well as Fars. Well, I mean, you wouldn't have Persian. I mean, you have some Persian dialect, and then you would have Mongol diplomats when they come in. Similarly, in China, you would have different kingdoms uh, with their accents coming in. And then when the, uh, the Mongols or the Jurchen, uh, they had the, those languages come in, and and you see that all over the place. I mean, if you can see it in Indian cities, African cities, North American cities. There's just that language just keeps evolving, and you just you you see, hey, that's a really awesome word for this, and we don't really have a word for this. So we're going to use that uh, so word. Borrow the word. So my my guess is is that all of these Kingslanders have a certain they, they speak words of a trade pigeon mm. that, and and it makes sense. They say you're too clever by half. And it's just because you have all of these different words for things. Mm, that's cool. That's a great explanation. I like that a lot. It's certainly, um, I, I had no explanation at all other than acknowledging it makes sense that these yeah. regions would develop with, with different ways of speaking, mannerisms, accents, yeah. things like that. So I'm glad to see George yeah. injecting a little of that into his world. Yeah, and I'm glad you actually asked me a question about world-building language rather than language <laughs> itself. And I would have been kind of much, much more of an idiot. <laughs> well, it worked out. Uh, a couple out. more notes here before we get to our next uh, main topic. Well, there's this great line, though, three silvers are better than three chickens, I grant you. And just, just another reminder of, of what things are worth <laughs> in this realm. Yeah. Also, it made us think of that uh, Homer Simpson line, didn't, didn't it? <laughs> we love our... Three, three, three silvers can buy many chickens. <laughs> Explain how. <laughs> Money can be exchanged for goods and services. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, a note on the Silent Sisters during the sickness. Well, that's hard to say fast. Uh, Sir Eustace says his daughter wouldn't speak to him. Now, it's unclear whether she wouldn't speak to him because she'd already taken the vows, or maybe she hadn't taken the vows yet, and she just didn't want to talk to him because she was mad at him. It's not really clear which, but either way, she died during the sickness, as most of the Silent Sisters did, which probably also happened to Fireball's wife. Fireball made, him, made his wife join the Silent Sisters because he thought he was getting a Kingsguard cloak. Uh, she may have died 
before the sickness. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. They um, handle the dead and they don't have a knowledge of germ theory. Right. So. Yeah. They have no idea whatsoever. It's, it's a good thing that uh, Septon Barth made them change out their water situation. Before. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, sewer, the sewers helped. Yeah. The yeah. sewers helped. So there's another shout out for Barth there. <laughs> yeah. So folks, if you're checking out our website, it's a great place to go to find different ways to support us. Check out Patreon. You can buy shirts. We've got a lot of designs now, hoodies, t-shirts, stickers, things like that. All those links are on our website. Friends over there at Shire Post Mint, great sponsor of ours. They make wonderful coins. Give them a look. Yeah. For they you. have a really awesome Trader's Dragon. Do they? Nice. That actually don't yeah. know that one. That's cool. They 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 yeah no they really they actually gave it they actually stuff. gave it to me for free. You don't, have that, oh, you don't have that one in your collection? Which one? The the Blackfire? Oh, the traitor. Yeah, the I'm sorry, I miss the, I misunderstood what you said. I saw I I, I yeah. have traitor, not traitor. Oh, oh yeah, no, no, traitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do have one of those. Yes, okay, the Damon cool. Blackfire yeah, coin. It's a really good coin. It is. It's great. It's exactly fitting for this. Uh, uh, it sounded <laughs> like you were a Blackfire supporter. Yeah. Like, I heard you wrong. Traitor's coin? Traitor. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> I don't acknowledge calling Damon Blackfire which, which a traitor. Because, <laughs> which is weird because if I remember correctly from my stuff, I'm a bit more of a Blackfire supporter than you are. Yeah, I was a little, I was more on the reds, <laughs> I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so another fun thing we, we planned for today, since nostalgia is such a major topic and theme of today uh, and of the Sworn Sword in general, I, well, I wrote full list, but it's actually not a full list. A partial, a nearly full list of prior appearances by Jim on this show, plus panels we've done together at cons, which that's why it's not complete, because I couldn't find a full record of our panel history at Ice and Fire Con. I got a few of them. I did get a full record of our panels at Con of Thrones, which includes Death of the Other, Hail the Conquering Hero, Targaryen politics and post-dragon Westeros that also had Sam Wallace, shout out Sam, and Steve Love, shout out Steve. Uh, that was 2018. And then we did Blackfire, Five Generations of Strife, which, hey, we're, we're, yep. we're doing that some of that again here. I will say that the, post, the Targaryen politics and a post-dragon Westeros, I had a feeling, like I was convinced that that was going to be like a barely attended panel <laughs> just because of how esoteric it was. And also it was on the first day but we had standing room only on that yeah, panel. That was a good one. That, that one was packed. Yeah. And we had a double room. We did. Yeah, that was fun. That was yeah. really good. We've had some I, I was impressed. <laughs> I was impressed by that panel. That was uh, really good. Uh, one panel uh, I do recall from Ice and Firecon was Regional Militia. Uh, that was one. Mm -hmm. That was kind of your baby. And then we had Lady Glenn. And then we did an episode on it with Stephen Allen. Yeah, we, participating. So we recorded cool. it. And uh, I know we also had, we did Death of the Other there, down that way too. Yeah. Um, um, oh, we did it for both, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, because that one was that one was just so relevant. Yeah, and the, the point of death of the yeah. other was to how humanity will fight the others, like what weapons and tactics and strategies. Because it's not like fighting a human foe. Um, yeah. So we made some guesses there. Obviously, we don't know for sure. But several of these panels are available on our YouTube channel slash on our podcast feed. We recorded them and put them up. There's no video feed, but you know you can hear the audio of them. So most of these are actually out there. And of course, the actual episodes we did together. Uh, this one, Redgrass Field. And we did Barristan 2 of Winds of Winter. That was only a few months ago. And we had a great time with that. And of course, as we mentioned before, it links up a lot of the themes of that one link up with this one. Have, have we been on a panel together, Jim? Hmm, have you guys? Um, I'm trying to think. Yes, we have been on a panel. I want to say it was at Con of Thrones. Yeah, it was like, was it on Valyrian Steel? Oh, yes, Valyrian, Valyrian Steel. Steel. That was the one. Okay. Oh, that was cool. the Valyrian Because we, we were also 
it was supposed to get oh we were, we were supposed, supposed to have to one the, of the, the weapons the, yeah the weapons master. the weapons master from the, the actual show but he had a at the last minute he got a new gig and that's the sort of gig where you yeah well it's just that's the sort the of issue show where you already, really yeah. can't turn yeah where you can't turn down work no it, it really is and it's a shame but i mean good for him yeah you know. yeah work in uh, that I business the, means like months and months and months of work yeah <laughs> yeah and i i just put i just found the uh the link to that uh the, the episode the actual bonus episode awesome. that i did i threw it i threw it in the chat and i think maybe the actual first thing we worked on like, i think this maybe predates the Redgrass Field episode, maybe not. I actually forget the dates. Is is, is the book "Him for Spring" that we worked on with? Yeah, no, that Stephen was the first Atwell thing we ever worked on. And Steph, Stefan Sasa, and I'm in from yep. Podcast Device and Fire. That was really good. That's uh, yeah, that was a that book's out of print now, sadly. Um, yeah. You can still get an e copy, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> that was the that was fun because you know we get to say we're authors now. <laughs> we're published. Yes, authors. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's actually on my resume. Yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> So that's a good thing. That was a lot of fun things. We got to work with great people and we got to, yeah, get to put a little feather in our cap at the same time. Okay. Well, that's, that's it for the nostalgia. Let's talk about the next section here in the um, episode. One of the things that is really important is coming up. Uh, it's going to be a part of the mystery night. It's also part of the world building that extends well beyond this story is Krakens, Dagan Greyjoy. Well, I'll take Nina's lead here. As though the realm needed any more problems besides plague and famine and drought, Sir Benison and Dunk informed the reader that the Ironborn have been raiding on the West Coast, burning and pillaging as they please, even down to the Arbor. It's hardly surprising that Dagon Greyjoy would take the opportunity to do so, of course. Not only does the realm lack a strong, popular executive authority, and not only are they focused on the East, but the combined disasters of famine, drought, and plague have crippled or eliminated altogether effective resistance on a local and national scale. And of course, this is what they are supposed to do culturally, religiously. They're supposed to attack the weak. And there's all sorts of things making people weak. There's all sorts of defenselessness. This is pretty much what Balon thought he could do. Uh, after yep. Robert's rebellion, he's like, okay, the realm is, is disunited. Robert doesn't actually have a handle on everyone. Now's the time. He was wrong. Dagon Greyjoy was not wrong. He, nope. yeah. So this is a big deal. And this, like you said, this gives fuel to the argument that Blood Raven is not a good ruler yeah. slash not paying attention properly. Yeah. What do you think? And he's leading the realm to ruin. I mean, it's just you know whether as uh, you know Balon's rebellion ironically helps consolidate Robert's rule because it's a big successful victory and he's able to bring the coalition together. Point, yeah. And I mean, and, and this includes the uh, people that were his former enemies. And whereas Bloodraven not doing anything against Dagon Greyjoy gives more fuel to uh, the Blackfire Rebellion. And we hear it with Sir Kyle the Cat. And he says, at least they fight. You know, he's talking about Lannister and Stark. At least they fight. At least they're trying, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you know, what does he do? He does nothing. You know, uh, King Ares does nothing and Blood Raven whispers into his ear. And it's like, well, I mean, because that's the thing is that even even if you just try, and, and you know, I'm not saying that, you know, let's just say that for, for the sake of argument, Blood Raven is right. And that if he does go west, Bitter Steel invades in the east. He does, there's a lot more things he can do between full-on invasion of the Iron Islands and nothing. Yes. Like, he could have, <laughs> He could have offered tax liens and or tax forgiveness to houses Lannister and Starks. So they have a bigger war chest. Yep. Uh, they he could have um, given them a gift of ships, uh, for example, uh, loaned 
for example, the Lannister Navy yeah. to have much more, have to have more ships to to get a detachment from the uh, the Royal Fleet. There's so many things he could have done, yeah. and he did nothing. To be fair, some of these things he might have done. Like I don't think he sent ships that mm. we would know about. But if he gave them some tax liens, I'm not sure the rank and file commoners would know about that. But still, the perception is he's done very little. He definitely yeah. didn't do enough. I would, we'd have to see it for sure. But I mean, yeah. given given that Blood Raven is really the kind, the kind of guy who goes whole hog on everything, point, yeah. I'm willing to believe he did absolutely nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's entirely possible. It does seem to, especially because it was difficult. Like with these other factors, it would be difficult. Yeah. I mean, it, to, let, let's be honest. I mean, you know, Westeros is bleeding yeah. at this point. So it's not like there's a lot in the tank. And the thing is, Dagon knows that there's not a lot in the tank, yes. which is why he's doing it. And to emphasize how big a deal this is, Dagon has starts has has been raiding since before this story started. Since before the Sworn Sword, yeah. he's been he's been raiding, and he's still raiding well into the next story, if not beyond that. Yeah, definitely beyond that. Um, so, any sort of ill will directed towards Blood Raven over his inaction is only getting stronger, more intense, and is going to linger in memory longer because it, yeah. it, it was a thing for so long. And, yeah, and it's probably going to be Egg that ends up handling the problem, either Egg or Makar. Um, yeah. they, they, you know, they, the, this quote is, it's like, you know, he was able to outrun the wolf and beard the, dra- the lion in his den, but no one could stop the dragons, Yeah, which suggests that it's a Targaryen effort. It would be interesting to see if, you know, du- if Egg and Dunk end up signing on to the combined Stark-Lannister effort and actually doing stuff. I mean, that would be kind of an interesting thing. I mean, we don't know about, I mean, Baron Stark and uh, who's, uh, who is it? It's not, it's... It's, it's Damon's, it's Tybalt, I think, at this point. Tybalt, yeah. yeah, Tybalt Lannister. We know nothing about Tybalt Lannister except he lost a joust once. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it would be interesting to see this character as well as give a, uh, you know, a window into the, the Stark, essentially the Winterfell conflict, because, you know, these half-brothers of Stark are dropping like flies in every single revolt and stuff like that. And if the theory that uh, yeah. Atwell was talking about is true, where these are actually proxy conflicts in the Winterfell War, yeah. that would be really interesting. Because, I, I mean, we yeah. see in, the, in the, the first chapter with Bran, Bran and with Rob later, the Northern Lords are not these, you know, super paragons of honesty. They wheel and deal just like everyone else yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. They're just a little more overt about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on the way from Old Town to Dorne, uh, or rather other way around, on the way to Old Town from Dorne. I, I kind of got confused about this in a prior episode because this happens before this story. They go from Dorne yeah. to Old Town and they get attacked by Dagon's Raiders and they have to fight. Dunk actually helps. Yeah. But we aren't told that until the next story. That's why I got confused yeah. because it should yeah. be something we're told in this story, but it isn't actually told to us until the middle of the next yeah. story. But, but yeah, because it's, it's right after the spring sickness was over. Right. Because they... they they waited it out smartly, but it, no, it, <laughs> yeah. and and that's good. But then it gives us the question of where's the red wine navy in this yeah. whole Dagon Greyjoy affair? Exactly, what's the Reach doing throughout any of this? I, it's it's kind of confusing, not confusing, but it's a, it's like hmm, it's an interesting mystery here. Now we we hear that they raid the, as far south as the Arbor, and no one yeah. goes that far south raiding again until Euron. And the one of the yeah. first examples we see of that is Sam and Gilly sail right past that on a similar route that Duncan Egg would have taken because they're sailing yep. around Dorne towards Old Town. Of course, Duncan Egg actually came out of Dorne, but this is basically the same yeah. route. And they see evidence of battle. They don't know it's yeah. Euron's ships, but they know it's Ironborn ships because, well, they can tell. Yeah. And this is very similar. Euron, unlike mm-hmm. his brother, picked the right time to do the Ironborn depredations along yeah. the well, coast. It, 
and he's also got crazy yeah. super magic drugs and all this other stuff yeah he's got yeah. <laughs> he's just a whole nother yeah. type oh, of no, i mean he's a level the forsaken the, for, <laughs> the forsaken is straight up a metal like that there's the horror and it's yes. also a metal out i mean that the, 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 the impaled god that's basically a metal album cover. <laughs> yes it is and the name i mean the forsaken sounds like a metal band oh. right like, <laughs> i'm looking i'm looking i'm looking forward to, to whatever blood magic what the fuckery is going on yeah. <laughs> and another funny thing about this so by the time the mystery comes around, like we said, another year will have passed. And by the time A Song of Ice and Fire comes around, the whole the main story, there's going to be lots of ships and humans named after Dagon Greyjoy. We've covered it, you know, here and there. We bring it up. This name pops up so often. Two ships in the Iron Fleet currently are named after him and a distant cousin in Asha's group who was killed at Deepwood Mott. Uh, and it's also mentioned, here's a, here's a quote, uh, that children on Fair Isle to this day, are told that Dagon will come get them if they don't behave. It's kind of like yeah. our Lady Lostin and her bats. It's yeah. kind of the same. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll snatch up the bad children. <laughs> and, yeah. and here's Duncan Egg actually talking about it at the end here. We could go to Fair Isle, sir, the boy said as they were gathering up their things. If they're being raided by the Iron Men, Lord Farman might be looking for some swords. Have you ever been to Fair Isle? No, sir, Egg said, but they say it's fair. Lord Farman's seat is fair, too. It's called Fair Castle. <laughs> yeah, well, they're making it sound real nice, but it's it's like the line, it's a place that's perhaps been raided over the years more than any other place by the Ironborn. So yeah. it is nice, but also it's kind of dangerous. Uh, he wouldn't be the first Targaryen to go, you know, chill out there, though. That's a good point. The The queen in the West. Uh, yep. Yeah, she hung out there for a while, worried about Magor, who was just too busy doing other stuff. So that's pretty too cool. busy killing. Yeah, too busy being Magor, you know, too busy being cruel. Yeah. Oh no, I'm I'm really hoping that we get at least at least a, a short snippet of some Black Sails adventure. Ooh, I mean, yeah. that's some, we need a rollicking adventure pirate to- pirate tale. That would be cool. Yeah, if we're doing all the different versions of 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 like genres of story, they could get they could yeah. get on a ship and, and do some some of that. Yeah, a good old pirate, good old fashioned pirate. You tale. know what they could do? Fantasy genre. <laughs> Whoa, the fantasy genre. Yeah. I don't, that, I, that's too much of that, a stretch. That just, that just got too, that's too meta for me. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have a, I'll take another lead from Nina here to take us into the next spot. They're walking towards the sort of showdown slash confrontation. Now we talked about the, the wood burning before, but here's another take on it, a different look at, at it and how it's a sort of a lead in to the field of fire, more nostalgia, more historical illusions here. It's, it's, less, it's used less for simple comparison and more to highlight the continuing theme of past Azrae glory and the perils of their fortune. It was the dragons, literal and dynastic, who on the field of fire ended the Gardner kings who would raise the Osgrays to marshals of the North March. So the ones who raised them up died, and with that, their decline began sort of in concert, or it kicked off their decline in turn. So Eustace notes in that aftermath, Highgarden passed from kings to stewards and the Osgrays dwindled and diminished. So in his mind, as the rightful seat of the Gardner Kings was taken over by the Tyrells, so did the Osgrays lose their rightful place. The parallels are pretty straightforward once you look at them. A new dragon king, unloved by the current Osgray, as as Aegon the Conqueror probably was by his Osgray ancestor, because they obviously were more loyal to the Gardeners, right? Versus the dragons at the time. 200 years ago. So he's given the Osgrey lands and water their neighborhoods. And it's under that king that these Webbers supposedly have destroyed the Osgreys 
wood and all that. So that's uh, an important framing of the scene because Egg's dragon heritage is revealed a few moments later too. So it's kind of all happens in concert. He Dunk uses it as sort of a last ditch effort to stop the violence. He doesn't show it to everyone. He just shows it to Lady Rohan only. I'm like, eh, just take a look at that. Notably, the ring doesn't fit her. That may be a little symbolism there. She's going to marry one lion and then another, after all. <laughs> but of course, the, the, the ring doesn't work. It's not enough. She's like, yeah, well, all I got to do is just not kill that boy. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I can still go ahead with my plan of, of overrunning y'all and seizing Venice as long as we don't kill that kid, which shouldn't be that hard to avoid killing a kid, you know? considering how outnumbered they are. I mean, they've only got like 20 people going with them too. So yeah. it's really easy. It's not like it's a chaos, big chaos of battle. Yeah. It's not a hundred uh, versus a hundred. It's yeah. Like they're yeah. just massively overwhelmed. So also it's really easy to pick out the kid. Yeah. The, the it's like, don't kid kill the kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she really explains her situation quite well. She breaks it down. Like we've, we've talked about it, like how hard it would be for a woman in a spot like this, where, where men just assume the woman is weak and weakness is a, is, a, is both an invitation to attack and a sign that you're weak. If you don't seize other people on other people's weakness, it might indicate that you're weak. It's really this you, sort of weakness cycle. Yeah. yeah, it's like a, it's a never-ending cycle of, of showing strength. So uh, let's have this quote. Those pissing contests are how lords judge one another's strength and woe to any man who shows his weakness. A woman must needs piss twice as hard if she hopes to rule. And if that woman should happen to be small, Lord Stackhouse covets my horseshoe hills. Sir Clifford Conklin has an old claim to Leapy Lake. Those dismal Durwells live by stealing cattle. And beneath mine own roof, I have the longinch. Every day I wake wondering if this might be the day he marries me by force. And again, following in this in chronological order, uh, the long inch when he's told he has to fight Dunk in a trial by combat gets mad and says, fine. But as soon as this is over, I'm marrying you. <laughs> so yeah, like he's, he's right there. She's right. And as Septon Sefton says at the beginning of the confrontation, the king's not going to know about this dispute. He's not going to care either. Yeah. More, nor is he going to care about some of these other disputes. That they're just too small scale for him to worry about. And just to back this up a little more, she says it's a pissing contest. It's because that's what Dunk tells her. He's like, yeah, when I was, one time I was with Sir Arlen and he got hired for this. And Sir Arlen said, yeah, it's just a, no one's going to do anything. It's just a pissing contest. That's not entirely true though, is it? It is sort of a pissing contest, but that's, that's well, I mean, not it's like, quite right. You know, it's, feudalism is all about, you know, holding the land in protection. So you have to be able to, to protect and maintain your lands. Yeah. And if, if someone conquers you, then right of conquest is, well, you were too weak to actually hold these lands, so I have to take them because I'm the only one who can hold it. Yeah. And so it, it is a pissing contest in, in the sense that a lot of it is, is flexing and power projection, but it's also not a pissing contest because there are very real con you know consequences. So the entire thing about a pissing contest is that there are no consequences. It's a meaningless show of strength, but it, it actually has very real consequences, not just for the people who live in there who might get killed in a chevauchee, but, you know, for these people as well, who lose. I mean, if she loses, you know, Horseshoe Hills, I mean, maybe there's a mine or something there or it's, uh, you know, the it's Leafy well, Lake. Yeah. Maybe there's a maybe there's a, a fishery there or something like that. You know, that's actually income that she needs. Yeah. And as well, it's a sign of if you can't defend your realm, like you said, then someone sh should would want to take it. It's also like if you lose to someone, if you show up to the pissing contest and you do poorly, well, then it 
shows that you're weak. So you're right. It's like a, it is a pissing contest, but there's, you, there's a lot that they read into that. It's, it does yeah. say a lot, even if to some people they can't tell what's going on. It's, it's like the way these lords and ladies dress for their station. A lot of this no, nuance is lost by people who aren't in that culture. But one of the things we talk about is how much like certain emblems or the, the regality of your dress reflects your station. If you dress above your station, people will react to that. Or if you dress below your station, people will react to that. So yeah, this is a very highly developed culture here that we're, we're seeing, even though it, it's, it's not really something that is super common in modern times. It's very real, and it was a big part of, of, of the real world as well. The real pissing contest was Aaron Greyjoy <laughs> when he was yeah. told, can you put a hearth fire out with <laughs> just peeing? So we have had a real pissing contest in, uh, <laughs> in this yeah. story. And didn't, didn't he say it's like, and he's like, they bet me against a, a, a flock or some goats. Yeah. And I, and I won, <laughs> and those goats were delicious. <laughs> so ridiculous, but hilarious. Dunk has this really clever diffusing of the situation. He's like, all right, fine. You got you to gotta show your strength. Well, how about this for strength? He cuts his cheek. He's like, everyone sees it. A cheek for a cheek. It's a pretty good line, actually. So she's like, all right. That, she thinks he's a little crazy, but she smiles and is like, all right, that's good enough for me, actually. Yeah. But then Eustace is like, no, you burned down my wood. You burned down my wood. And she says, no one burned the wood, she said. But if some man of mine had done so, it must have been to please me. How could I give such a man to you? A lot of people have made this excuse throughout history. It's a good excuse. Like, how can you prove otherwise? Like, I didn't order him to do it, but he must have done it to please me. <laughs> There's some other historical examples of that one. Um, maybe uh, won't someone rid me of this tur turbulent priest? You know, <laughs> like examples like that of of someone just claiming, oh, I didn't actually say it. I was just exclaiming. Yeah kind of the old mafia boss line like yeah i didn't uh, i didn't give that order yeah. and how would they prove otherwise you know yeah but the, the problem is is that um even though it's like it seems like it's kind of got a way out for everybody the problem is is now eustace is in the pissing contest because if something burned down his woods now he's the one that can't defend his yes mind. so it's not like i mean you know yes you can say that eustace uh, has more fault and he's a lot less blameless but he still has the problem with, you know, he's got such a minuscule thing lands, but he has to be able to defend them. Otherwise, he's going to lose what little bit he has left. Good point, yeah. And then, you know, it seems like he did, but I mean, you know, you mentioned here, it's like he wants to die with a sword in hand. And it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that he does because he's just watched as his family has just crumbled all the way to ruin. And, you know, the greatest moment of his life was in the red grass field and that's uh, ages past. And now he's just shuffling along, decrepit. And he wishes so he why died. Not, he like laments. Why, why not die? Yeah. Why not die sword in hand, just like his, just like Damon Blackfire did before? And when else will he get a chance to do that, right? Like, yeah. when is he going to have another chance to to legitimately yeah. fight? Far for me to be to say, hey, you know, there's a guy raiding uh, the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about the Ironborn. Like, if you want to go sword in hand, there's, they need some help over there. Yeah, but and let's also not forget though, it puts Lady Weber in a bind because, as we said before, Eustace, if Eustace dies without a male heir, his lands go to the crown. And Lady yep. Weber's neighbor becomes the crown instead of weak Eustace. So that she doesn't want that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like they might not let her keep the dam up, for example. Yeah. Or they might even just they say, well, look, you you got the, the checky water because 
Osgrays were traitors, but there's no more Osgrays, and I was a loyalist, so no, 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 no. Yeah. You don't get the Jeffy Water anymore. She does not want to take that chance of the the king, uh, the king giving those lands to some good friend of his, and yeah. you know, then who was always going to take it, it their just, side. Yeah. There's just no way, no way that it, if it, if that's the way it goes, there's no way that it ends where she's not worse off. Yeah. So she makes probably the only move she can make, and it's smooth. It's clever. Oh yeah. It's really smooth. Like if she wins. Well, then she wins, right? That then good. Like the trial by combat goes her way. And if she loses, then Lucas Inchfield's dead. And she's happy yep. with that. Like that's a great yeah. thing. So this is a real win-win for her. So it's part of like showing how clever she is, because this is this is great. And then of course, you know, in the scenario of losing the trial by combat, she would still have to pay him some sort of indemnity for the burn woods. Admit that, okay, well, the trial by combat says I'm guilty, so I gotta pay you something. It would just be money though, right? It, it wouldn't be like she wouldn't lose yeah. face. It's, so. it's just, it's just wear guild. Yeah, it's just wear yeah. guild. So yeah. that's that'd be worth it to get rid of Sir Lucas. Like, I'm pay, can I pay a sack of silver to get rid of this guy? Actually, that's a pretty good deal. So <laughs> and then she even yeah. gets out of that. She doesn't even have to end up paying for the woods because they get married. And it's just like, well, that's yep. my land. This is our land now. So I don't owe you anything. So it's super smooth. In the hedge night, the action here or there was a blending of Brienne's fight versus Loras. And so is this one, including an element of unrealized romance. <laughs> but as for the action, uh, Lucas Longinch wields a long axe like Brienne did. And, and Loras wielded a morning star, which that was mirrored by Arian. Uh, Arian lost his morning star and here Dunk loses his sword. And Brienne and Dunk used their ace in the hole, the old tackle and grapple play. Yeah. Being larger Which works than out the because other they're guy. bigger. Yep. yep. <laughs> they're bigger. yep. <laughs> Brienne's much bigger than Loras. Uh, Dunk is yeah. bigger than than Long. It's maybe not a lot bigger, but bigger and not not as much and yeah. way more experienced at it though. Like I don't, you don't get the sense that many people are Dunk's oh, yeah. match in skill. Like forget the size. Yeah, but and he he probably I mean he had been in scraps and flea bottom yeah. for his whole life. So you could uh, and it. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say that. So if it's Lucas Long Inch, that it's Dunk Long Foot, <laughs> longer inch, possible. But it's also long it's year. also where this is also ties into the class thing. I mean, it would happen in the Hedge Knight where it's like you know, Arian could beat Dunk Hedge Knight. He couldn't beat Dunk of Flea Bottom. Yes, and it and it is using the you know the the lower class move, you know the the move that's not the honorable thing, which is kind of weird because it's like. Actually, in combat training, they studied pancreation all the time in the Middle Ages. Yeah. They, they studied wrestling. It, <laughs> it was part, part of the thing. But it's not the, the showy, honorable swords duel and the sword is the weapon of the warrior. No, no, no. no. This, is, this is tussling in a stream. Yeah. This, is, you know, this is hardcore, low-class low class stuff. And that's where Dunk is in his element because that's what he's been all his life. Yeah. Great catch by Julie A. She points out that Brienne also holds Jamie's head underwater when after he after she beats him in their short duel right before they're captured by Vargo Hotsman. Uh, so of course he uh, she obviously doesn't drown him, but she threatens to. <laughs> She's like, "Look, man, <laughs> you've lost. Give up already. I'm holding your head underwater." But there's a, a small um, pattern emerges here as well. Egg in all three stories, as you said, just like the the Western theme, where there's a sort of a climactic duel at the end, and in, in, in keeping with that, Egg is watching all time, all three times. Every time he yells, he's right there, which is kind of an odd thing to yell as an encouragement. But I love it. It's just it's quirky. It's endearing. I like it. Great. I love that. I, I hope we get that. Continue. I hope I hope we have more. He's right there's in our future. And here's another recurring pattern. Dunks. Very thick head. Multiple times he takes blows to the head. 
a broken ankle, a sprained knee, a broken collarbone, bruising. Your upper torso is largely green and yellow and your right arm is a purply black. I thought your skull was cracked as well, but it appears not. There is that gash in your face, sir. You will have a scar, I fear. Oh, and you had drowned by the time we pulled you from the water. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I drowned? <laughs> What's dead will never like, die. Yeah, so. but you know, Ironborn Maester come to the rescue there. So there you go. So this, this brings back a theme that is omnipresent throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, especially in Brienne and Jamie chapters, which is the line told to Jamie by Arthur Dane. It's a great symbolic line. So much work is done by this line. All knights must bleed. And well, whether it's minor bleeding, like the face cut or this huge beating he takes, it's just very well expressed here. Well, Arthur Dane said it too. Blood is the seal of our devotion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And here's another line that Arlen tells Dunk that's completely in line with that concept. A knight had to learn to live with aches and pains, the old man used to say. I, lad, and with broken bones and scars. They're as much a part of knighthood as your swords and shields. Now, Dunk seems to just fully accept this. He's like, he is kind of a born warrior, right? He's just like, yeah, that's how it is, all right. Yep. <laughs> Not, where's the lie? Great uh, catch by Nina here as well. She points out that some of our seminal are they or are they not knights or their struggle with knighthood, their argument with knighthood, their, you know, just dancing around the concept of knighthood in different ways. Dunk, Brienne, and Sandor all have significant spatial scarring. Uh, Dunk probably has the, the smallest scar of the three. He only has a cheek cut, although it's a pretty severe cut. Brienne's face is chewed off partly and Sandor's is burned off. I mean, I don't know which of those is worse. I guess, I don't, gosh, I don't even know. I don't know why I'd rather have my face burned or eaten. I don't, let's just not worry about that too much. They're both awful. And yeah, that's a real, there's just so much work done here. I mean, we could just talk about it forever. You know, just this knighthood theme, just the, the scars, the battle, the, the stories they tell. What would you, uh, would you, anything to add on this, uh, this, this concept, Jim? I mean, the, the dramatic injury is, is always an important part of storytelling, and it's good. I mean, and it's good that, uh, I mean, we're getting more Brienne and Dunk parallels, which are good because Brienne is long lost secret descendant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I also find that it's, it's, you know, it's funny that, uh, you know, usually it's, it's the female character that gets the, the less trend, you know, the less cosmetically disfiguring injur- injury, but here it's the himbo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, it is good. I really, I really, uh, you know, it's, it's just a good catch that facial injuries because you carry them with you. Yeah. And it's interesting about blood because, and I know this from personal experience, head injuries don't clot the way other injuries do. Mm. And there's a good reason for that is because you don't want a blood clot clot in the uh, in your your brain. Head. Yeah, that's bad. That'll yeah, you, you don't really want that. So head injuries bleed a lot longer so you actually have to press them and get them get them stitched you know get them shut and so it's interesting that these people get these serious injuries which continue to show that seal of devotion even though in sandor's case it's specifically a rejection of knighthood yeah because he gets the oils that to help heal his face and his psychopathic brother gets the oils from rhaegar himself (laughs) like what that is wrong yeah (laughs) And then framed with that, there's a little bit of comic relief. This story has good amounts of comic relief. Here's, a, here's yeah. one of my favorites. When he's first waking up, he says, egg. He got out. I want egg. 
Hunger is a good sign, the maester said, but it is sleep you need now, not food. No, and, and that's the thing. Sometimes sometimes a joke is really good when it comes to just delivering a solid punchline. That was a good one. That was a really good one. Speaking of good, Egg was a very good squire in the document. I wrote it with the trademark symbol. Yeah. Uh, very good squire trademark because he, he's got vibes of Edric Dane and Adam Osgray. I mean, he's standing over Dunk as he's injured, defending his body, you know, while yeah. he's lying there. He's just a good egg. He is a good egg. You're right. And Edric Dane literally pulled Beric out of the water, which which Egg did as well. He's like, he's stronger than he seems. He pulled you out of the water. Like, that does. Like, he's wearing armor and he's huge. Like, that would take a lot yeah, of strength. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. There's kind of a peculiar moment, too, after when he wakes up before the Egg comment. Uh, he wakes up with the taste of blood in his mouth, with the smell of cloves and unguent, and the first thing he sees is ravens looking at him. I'm not sure that's meant to be a nod to Blood Raven watching, but it could be. It certainly fits as a bookend to the start of the story when they see ravens covering these cages, and then I'm shortly just wondering, after, there's no there's no birds anymore because the the bodies are just skeletons at this point. Is it a sly reference to when John waking up after he he killed the white? Oh yeah, Castle Black. That could be it. It could be yeah. Also, I mean, some, um, yeah, sometimes he just loves his little, his little, you know, he loves to season it with little references to earlier to, to, to other parts of the book. That's a very good point. Yeah. Hmm. Let's think about that some more. So, folks, certainly, certainly weigh in if you've got takes on this mystery or any of the other ones. As always, I encourage mm-hmm. you to let us know what you oh, think. Oh, yeah. Please, please always comment. It's always fun to hear from the community. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, the departure is the next section here. That's when they're getting ready to leave, and Dunk uh, has some of his strongest romance vibes with Rohan. Nina suggests this section should have been called Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, <laughs> which is hard to argue with that. Uh, and this is about a happy ending as we can get. Like, as far as, far as A Song of Ice and Fire, George R. Martin's writings in general, it's really better nice. than The Hedge Knight. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's like all sorts of awful things there. I mean, this is pretty much, almost everything ends well here. Like, they get to grieve together. It's, it's a perfect solution. The marriage is a, is a, it works really well. Even if the actual marriage doesn't work out, it's a great solution from like a legal standpoint and, and solving the, the problems. And the grieving is a therapy that was important for them. Even rains. I mean, that's arguably the best part of all, right? I mean, we're talking yeah. about a drought that's been going on for a while, like months and months. Like if, if talk about what ifs, if this had happened sooner, like a lot of these problems wouldn't happen, right? The fire wouldn't have caught probably. And yeah, I mean, the, just the woods wouldn't have burned down. None of that, none of that bad stuff would happen. I mean, you don't even really need to worry about the dam so much if there's water everywhere. Yeah, right. Exactly. So the so many of these issues would have been resolved. The food would be there. No, yeah, there's just just all these. It just goes on to show how much of the story was rooted in desperation, and how much that desperation is removed by just nature cooperating. You know. But then again, as we said back in the beginning, with the Fisher King, the Fisher King mythos. Now that the land has healed, now that the people have healed, the land has healed. Yeah. And the the best way is now that the I mean. Obviously, the drought's not over because I don't know if you've ever been in an area with drought when there is a rainstorm. All that ends up doing is creating a bunch of flash floods. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The soil doesn't just become rich all of a sudden. It just gets Yeah, no. Wet. It, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't even get wet. The problem is it's all hard out. That's hard true. Out. It just flows so on top. That's where the water stays on the top. Yeah. yeah. That's why you get all those floods. So, of course, he has this dream, this very, uh, you know, obviously a sex dream about Rohan, a love dream, a romance dream. She's naked in it. I mean, there's she's shooting air, shooting arrows at him. It's kind of Cupid-like, and there's 
an association of the legal stuff. So there's a lot of things mixed into it, like the the fear, the panic, the unres, the, the how this is all going to resolve. He's anxious about it, but also he's into her. So it's it's yeah. more straightforward than a lot of dreams, even though it's got a lot of the similar like metaphor and symbolism that's common in literary dreams. Yeah. But there's less mystery in this one than I think in a lot of other dreams. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, no, no. I mean, this one's pretty, you know, pretty obtuse, but uh, also, I mean, well, Dunk's obtuse anyway, but... Yeah, no, it's just it's just a sex dream. But uh, I mean, it kind of wraps up with, uh, you know, Dunk being a himbo and also sexually frustrated because he never found uh, what's her name? Um, Tom Sell too tall. Uh, yeah, at least. And uh, and it does also sort of maybe give him a little extra strength to fight yeah. Lucas Longinch. Gives him a little boost there, you know, powering yeah. up, powering up his his well, arm. Jorah Jor- won that tournament. Motivated by the power hey, of love. Hey, good so. point. Very good point. Very good point. That was... So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, that's a great catch. And of course, there's so much innuendo here. It's it's another oh part God. of the story that's just so funny. It's just, it, just, just George. Oh, yeah. Really I great. mean, it, it, could, it couldn't have been... The only way it could have been more overt is if when she was shooting him, he was she was trying to give him the little death. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's... Just, that's <laughs> it really was overt. But again, that's okay. I mean... George R. R. Martin does a lot of symbolism and fun things, and just like with House Man Woody. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you need to hit him on the jaw. Just, just a, a straight dab. Why not? Yep, yep. Okay, so this quote is like a. This is maybe a Shea. This is one of your favorites, right? Yeah, I, I put it as the quote for our weekly discussion post. Actually, randomly. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Go ahead. Here we go. It is good to see you on your feet. You never saw me on my back. He thought. Milady, what brings you to the stables? It's a wet day for a ride. I might say the same to you. <laughs> it's a wet day for oh a ride. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, man. This is where, like, anybody's like, they're, they're flirting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's like their last chance to flirt, so they better get it in while they can. Yep. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then she says, You have large feet, she observed. Large hands as well. I think you must be large all over. She's clearly talking about his kidneys, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the organ that, she's referring yeah, to. Yeah. What's that? What, what do they say about guys with big feet? Yeah. They've got big, they've got big shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The final conversation with Duncan Rohan is fittingly very flirty. This is another great take from Nina. They have both been trying to avoid each other because they know that they're attracted to each other. And it's like, well, they know they can't consummate it, but they kind of can't help each other. So this is kind of like dancing around what they want to do. Their attraction is is really uh, pulling them in a direction that they know that they can't go. They both recognize the impassable gulf of rank between them, is how she puts it. That's a good way to phrase it. Emphasizing their unrequited love, Dunk Riley noting that he could marry the dead Alisanne Osgray. Rohan would be his lady mother. But she has to explain, you know, she has to marry in terms of her will. You know, her will won't, the will that her father imposed won't allow that. Uh, He thinks, I bet she's freckled all over. Yeah, we know what he means by that. Uh, All these different innuendos. It's just nonstop. It's great. And even the horse. This is one I didn't actually catch. Uh, Nina points out that the horse that she tries to give him is pretty much her in horse form. It's red. It's named Flame. It's it's a fancy horse, you know. But... (laughs) And so fittingly, he rejects the horse, too, just because he can't have her. He can't have this fancy horse. He would rather have the braid, which is pretty cool because it it speaks to who he is, his hedge knight nature. He doesn't want this fancy horse, even though horses are necessary to be a knight. The memory of this event 
the social, the connection to her, the braid has more meaning to him. It's, it's a, it's more part of the hedge knight's life. I think it, I think it fits him more. Yeah. You know? and, and it's romantic. Too. Yeah, it is romantic. It really is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Whereas it's like, you can't, you can't, there's no, I mean, a uh, flame is useful. There's literally no reason. There's no practical reason for the, for the, it's just, it's a memento of the experience they have. Yeah. But yeah, no, the, the entire thing is just hugely flirty. Um, <laughs> But uh, and it's interesting too that the horse he does take later is you know egg is rain and it's the rain that fell the solution they're now taking the solution with them the resolution of it is with them so now they're, they're walking away from the event they've got you know and it's a physical representation of essentially here's the lesson we learned yeah it's rain and because you know they how do they bond together because they rained over the graves yeah, you know, you know, the, right. the blackberry patch with, with crying nice. you know how did the uh drought end with rain and so like i said it's this the resolution of all the events and now they they march off into the sunset yeah. and and building on what you said before about jorah and wearing uh, yeah the token the, this braid is yeah. sort of like a permanent version of that like she he carries that around he'll always be like it'll pump him up a little bit Something to remind him, but way more than the horse will. The horse might like help him in other ways. Well, definitely would have helped him yeah. in other ways, but it wouldn't give him like this personal inspiration, like this inner fire, this valor that he can draw on. His horse isn't going to do that for him. It would be more yeah. of an external value, which is still something significant. But uh, morale, as we know, is more important <laughs> yep. in battle. So that's pretty cool. A very uh, neat way for George to wrap this up, but also the braid. Yep is very symbolic culturally. Now we can't, it's a, it's a very open to interpretation because braids are one of the oldest things for like the way people adorn themselves, the way people like manage their personal appearance. Like, and it's a really neat cultural thing in the sense that these cultural traditions have been maintained for a long time because braiding hair, it's usually women, but plenty of men have their hair braided, obviously, like that's a thing. It's even to this day, it's very personal, very social because there's not like some machine that no. braids your hair. Like it's still a hands-on thing, like 99% of it. Like the technology of braiding hasn't really changed that much over the years. Like people figured this out a long time ago and it's still pretty much how it's done. Like people come up with new ways to do braidings, but like it's mostly developed yeah. a long time ago. Most like yeah. in Western culture, a lot of it represents things like mourning or widowhood or being unmarried, all of which applies to Rohan, right? She's in, she should be in mourning sort of like culturally, she should be in mourning. I'm not saying like she should be in mourning, but like that's what culture expects of her because she's been widowed. And of course, so she is a widow and she's currently unmarried. So, uh, although actually by the time Dunk takes the braid, she technically has just gotten married. So it kind of is fitting to ditch the braid in that sense. But what I mean by the opening, the interpretation being very broad is because there's so many different cultural meanings across every culture ever about what braids mean. I'm talking about real world cultures. It's open to the reader to, to kind of have their own sense of, of what it means to, you know, look at this and be like, oh yeah, it also means this or this and this because braids are so, so wide open to interpretation. I was just going to say, I, I was typing in the chat, so I don't honestly know if you guys brought this up, but it was brought up. Uh, do you guys think of this as wrong, creepy, weird for him to take the braid? Do you, do you guys think at all about that? It it was a little awkward. Yeah, I think. Okay. Like he, he I, read I took her it, yeah. correctly because she wasn't mad. Yeah, by she it. wasn't mad about it, but as a yeah. reader, I think reading that at a meta level, it, it comes off strangely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, I, I think. I mean, I, I 
I think I just interpreted it as kind of like the lady's favor and the token yeah. knighthood. I think so. I think, and I think, just, you know, I mean, it would be a lot more creepy. It's like, oh, I'm going to take some of your hair. I mean, that that's, <laughs> you know, obviously stalker territory. And I mean, it was a real um, thing was they would give someone a lock of their hair that, yeah. it, you know, but just forcefully taking a woman's braid. <laughs> there, that is a real fetish yeah, um, yeah, that men yeah, have yeah, is doing that sort of thing. So you could yeah, see why women just, are uh, not so into it. Yeah. I, yeah. I could, I could understand that. Uh, but it, it looks like she didn't take it as no gross and fetishy so yeah um thank goodness, thank goodness. Yeah. a good i still want to like dunk <laughs> a, a similar nina suggests like a couple of somewhat similar situations for example when sandor demands a song from redheaded sansa it's a little similar uh, although sansa's actually very uncomfortable by this and whereas rohan is accepting of it yeah. And of course, there's also, if this is an example of how different cultures see this in world, Dothraki would be like, this is, this is horrifying. Like she just won. <laughs> well, actually she did lose kind of the well, trial she, by combat. Lost, so, so, so I guess yeah. actually it does fit in that sense, but it would, it is fitting yeah. in that regard because she lost. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so he claimed her braids. Hey, it kind of works in that sense. Like, he's like, Hey, I, I won this. <laughs> it's like, Hey, we're not Dothraki. We were just talking about horses, but hold on there. Wait a second. In terms of Into the Sunset, yeah, that is how it ends. Um, we've yep. got the final quote here. But before that, we know George, we've discussed this already. George gives a kind of a nod and a wink about Tanzel, about eventually mm-hmm. finding her. Bennis, though, Bennis the brown sheared, who knows? We, he may or may not ever yep. encounter him again. It would be nice if Bennis got justice, but it isn't always George's way to, yep. to wrap everything up so nicely. Some people do, in the real world, escape justice, mm-hmm. and Bennis might be... Oh, and he also was just like Bender from Futurama. Yeah. When it's because it's like uh, after the the college episode when they do the 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 credits roll and it's like his mission accomplished. Bender stole everything of value and left. And it's like, <laughs> yep, that's exactly what Bennis the uh, of the Brown Shield did. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. So here's the basically the last line or the last lines, and we'll use this as our outro as well. Summer Hall is south. Your father. The wall. The wall is north. Dunk looked at him. That's a long way to ride. I have a new horse, sir. So you do, Dunk had to smile. And why would you want to see the wall? Well, said Egg, I hear it's tall. (laughs) That's true. Yes, it is. It is indeed. It is tall. It sounds like they're heading towards the wall, but which might mean, uh, which is sort of a hint that it was going to be the few wolves of Winterfell next. Notably, um, we got our clarification. Uh, I asked Nina. It is not confirmed that the village hero is book four. Okay. What we do know is that he said, there's no telling when I will have time to finish either of these or which one I will write first. I don't expect I will know more until I've delivered the winds of winter. Okay, cool. So it could be either. So it was premature of me to say that the wiki was wrong. It's just yeah. the wiki, uh, we shouldn't know. We, we should, the wiki should, yeah, the wiki no, is wrong just, in that it shouldn't call it book four. It should that is say not confirmed. there's no, okay. Um, gotcha. Says we don't know which one's going to be booked. Yeah, but, it's going to you know, be one of those two, though. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, Standfast is in the Reach, and there's a lot of places that are north. Yeah. yeah. And if the village hero is in Pennytree, Pennytree is also north. Yeah, so they could be on the way, but obviously they could go to north yeah. and then come and then back. There's so yeah. much time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're... Oh, they're, yeah, yeah. This is very early in their lives, yeah. so... Yeah, and we also have George R. R. Martin travel times sometimes. Sometimes they are a little, a little wiggy. <laughs> Guilty Undertaker says Rohan's the grandmother, Tywin, and the great-grandmother ma- of Jamie, Cersei, and Tyrion, right? She's quite Tyrion-like in the story. Oh, yeah. Ashay, you, you made some notes here. 
trial by combat. They're both short, snarky, yeah. generally just very clever. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. You know, that's a great catch that they are very connected. Yeah, I mean, they're both. You know, they have they have a highborn person with a lowerborn person that they can't be mm -hmm. with. It's you know, kind yeah. of a star-crossed lovers type of thing. People sort of look down on them, not just because yeah. of their height, because of their, yeah, <laughs> certain aspects of, like, people, there's rumors oh, she's a about them. She's a woman, and he's, you know, a dwarf. A dwarf, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a really good catch. Yeah, Guilty yeah. Undertaker, I, yeah, I definitely really like that. I could probably do a no, parallel cool, lives yeah. about that one. Yeah, yeah you should. <laughs> you spoiled it. So, you can't do it for another Yeah, I think now you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to wait. You have to wait till it, it, <laughs> it evaporates from the consciousness. <laughs> that's right. Shh. Don't, no one heard me say that. No. Uh, Dornish James says, also with Dunk Rohan versus Johnny Grit, there's a reversal of common-born man slash high-born woman to high-born man, so it's common-born woman. Oh, yeah. And two Very, redheads. And both are, yeah, exactly. And, and both Archer girls. Yeah, yeah. both Archer, oh, yeah. <laughs> redheads as well. Yep, yep. That's very yep. true. Good catch. Well, once again, the History of Westeros commenters, the, the community comes through with some excellent uh, takes, some excellent catches, some great questions that set us off in new directions. And, well, I can't get enough of it. We'll, we'll keep them coming. Uh, thanks a lot, Jim. This was a great discussion. We uh, learned a lot. You, as always, had some, some great takes, some things that none of us have considered, some things that maybe we had considered but didn't know very well that you helped illuminate even more. Um, anything, any last words or anything you want to shout out or um, say? Uh, no, I mean, I'm just saying, uh, you know, that's why I like this community that, that we're all a part of. And, you know, each of us have our own little different backgrounds and histories. And so, you know, you just, I mean, you're at Ice and Fire Con, you're talking about something and somebody comes in with the, hey, what about this? And it's like, what, what do you mean? And then you explain something and then 10 minutes later, you've learned this crazy new thing. Yep. And we, we have it with the cons and man, I'm really itching for cons. Right? So, you know, <laughs> COVID's been killing us. It is stupid but, COVID, uh, yeah. Yeah, hopefully uh, we get some cons back in, but it was great I, yeah. working out with you again. And we did, we did fix what we did last time when we talked about it last time when we said, uh, Maybe I need to be on more often yes. because we had the, the tech problems from the from the Barristan episode. So the promise was kept. That's right, and it, it's I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure we have plenty more uh, episodes due together slash panels. I'm sure the, the future is yes. bright. Um, we'll, we'll definitely be doing more together, both live and on streams. So keep uh, just stick with us, folks. We'll we'll keep them coming. Um, also mentioned in this episode, besides our previous episodes with Jim. Barristan 2, Redgrass Field, Panels, Him for Spring. Uh, we also talked about our Summer Hall episodes. We mentioned um, probably some other stuff. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but <laughs> uh, we'll be starting the Hedge Night. I mean, sorry, the Mystery Night uh, shortly. Uh, that'll be, Sean will be returning for that. And uh, if you aren't aware, uh, the current date is August 15th as of this recording, and we have just finished recording uh, part four of the Dance with Dragons with Radio Westeros. It's currently up for patrons and will be yep. delivered for everyone else shortly, so keep an eye out for that as well. Yeah, I was going to listen to it, but I had to prep for this episode first. All right, well, now let's so, do that next. That's going to that's gonna be my uh, it's gonna be my Monday. Right on, cool. Well, thanks again, Jim. Thanks, Ashea. Thanks, everyone who came uh, and attended this live. Thanks to everyone who sent questions ahead of time. Thanks to Nina for her excellent takes. Uh, thanks to our mods over on the Facebook group. Thanks to everyone who comments on Flick and Slack and Discord and Facebook. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our video intro and the maps you see behind us. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the uh, Valar Reredis music. 
Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular History of Westeros music. Thanks to the Vengineer for sound quality, mastering, and all that goodness. And what is Here Be Dragons doing today? Do we know? Maybe more Clone Wars or something like that. There's lots of Star Wars content these days going on. Should, I should have realized because they invited me, but I couldn't do it. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Oh, which the Spider-Verse. Is, that's just my up there in my top two favorite comic book movies of all time. That so, was such a fun flip. That's that so, was good. so good. Yeah, yeah. if really you haven't seen time. it, 100% watch it. Even if you're not into comic book anything, it's so worth it. It's it is, really it's, an invention. It's really oh, yeah. worth it. Yeah, um, really yeah. I, I won't say yeah. any more, but it's great. Excellent blend of drama and, and comic. It's yeah. one of those Excellent movies you, you feel like 10, 15, 20 years from now, you can look back and be like, you can list all the movies that can were influenced that, by Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, that, uh-huh. that, that drew influence. It has that feel of a movie that is cha- oh, going to change how we, other movies are made. <laughs> watch the cinema Watch the cinema wins on it, too, because they specifically go into a lot of the uh, the different shot-by-shot compositions mm. and the lighting and things like like technical detail. Yeah, no, it's, yeah it's uh, beautiful animation, the style. It's so unique. It really... Yeah. We're probably preaching to the choir, but just yeah. those few you maybe yeah. haven't checked it apparently, out. Apparently, apparently we are not. We're preaching to Nina, who says, "I really need to watch it." Oh yeah, Nina, uh, definitely check that out. Wild, yeah. Nina, go watch that right now. Yeah, right now. <laughs> cool. Well, anyway, folks, uh, we'll be back with more as usual. We'll keep them coming. Thank you all again, and Valar rereads.